Hey everybody, and welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi everyone. Our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And once again, back with us, Amber Pierce. How you doing? Hello, I'm doing great. Thanks. Awesome. Uh, for those that didn't listen to the previous episode, episode 193, uh, you joined us. We talked on a whole bunch of issues with pro racing with because you are a Cannondale pro athlete and then with Mavic and a bunch of other brands as well. Uh, but we also talked about women's specific issues that uh, all three of us here have absolutely no idea about in terms of personal <laughs> experience, right? Um, so, uh, but people loved the episode. It was awesome. Thanks, uh, everyone. Yeah, we're excited. <laughs> To have you back. You were also super active in our forum. Yeah, uh, yeah. For this, people had some amazing questions. So, thanks for that, you guys. Yeah. That was that was really fun. Really, if there was no questions, this would be a horrible podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, we just talk about like I don't know. Consi ski, ski trips? Yeah, considering the, considering <laughs> the title. Yeah. yeah, considering the title of the podcast, it would be bad if we It'd had probably just questions. be me asking you two questions <laughs> the whole time. Mm. Yeah, actually, yeah, that sounds about right. So so thank you for the questions. Of course. Yeah. How do I submit a question, Jonathan? You can do so at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Way to go, Nate. Fives <laughs> on that one. Uh, trainerroad.com slash podcast. That's the best spot to, to submit those questions. Um, I'm actually the one that comes through all of them. Uh, we get usually, we get like hundreds per week, but please continue to support or to submit them. We love that. Um, and ask your most vexing questions. If there's something you haven't been able to solve on the bike, if there's something that you haven't been able to figure out in terms of performance, anything like that. I like even simple questions because sometimes oh, yeah. simple questions you can get like Super a lot of mileage. Yeah, a lot of mileage. Yeah. Like the more yeah, complexity is not directly tied into a question being very good. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Absolutely. But please submit them and you can do so there. You can also join us on the forum, forum.trainerroad.com. And uh, like we mentioned, Amber had some she's probably got like carpal tunnel from answering all those <laughs> questions this week that were in there. Uh, but you can actually join in and you can um, check out all the different things that we're going to talk about the day before the podcast, which is pretty cool. And you can see all the discussion that's going on with different people in the forum. Um, the, the only problem I have with the forum is as soon as I post something, it's gone because there are many other things, but that's easy to find too. You just search through and you can find it. But in other words, there's a ton of activity on there. You should check it out. Um, uh, yeah. So I guess let's cut straight into things. First thing we said last week, there were two things that we weren't going to talk about last week, but did happen. The first thing is Nate, you won a mountain bike race. Sort of. No, let's quit with this sort of stuff. Nate won uh, the expert. Th Own it. Third, which class? Yeah, exactly. It was still, yeah. There's a like novice sport and expert. I raced expert, mm -hmm. and I won thirty to thirty nine. But I, what they were like analogous Flushed. to Cat One. Stop. There's, there's a, Stop. Yeah, sentence exactly. This is a great ex <laughs> and I want to cover this because uh, so a lot of it's super tempting for us always to. Once we have some sort of success, downplay the importance of it. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't think that it's healthy. It's a nasty habit. Uh huh. I think that yeah, instead, oh no. Here, here's the, what I'm. Here's what I think. Guys. Okay. And ladies, <laughs> um, it is. Uh, I'm trying to like focus on improving all the time, right? So you can't be like, oh, I won. I'm the best. No, there's like so many yep. things. So rather than talk about that, let's talk about how we can improve. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. No, but this is an important part. There, there's a difference between like, I just won and I'm done. I'm checking out. I'm not going to continue to work as hard. And then there's a, I just did awesome. I'm going to celebrate that. And then that's going to fuel me on to do I more. on Strava. Now it's time to move forward. So I just want to tell you one. There were four people in my group. Overall, an expert, I was right mid-pack. Okay. I was like 37 out of 80. Um, From where you were? Still good. That I mean, is extremely If it was a cat one, was better. The problem is I still can't turn very well. <laughs> and this course had a lot of turns. So I, I have like a lot of improvement to do. Okay. And last week, 
between that, I went to a mountain bike clinic at the same course, which okay. was good. It was a, a beginner mountain bike clinic. There was, I think, eight of us in there. A couple of people had never been at dirt on the dirt before. Mm. And the the first part was all the things we've covered before with like waiting and stuff like that. But the most beneficial part for me was um, there was a little teeny hill um, where we could go down and up. And I was able to do that. It was like 10 second laps and have a coach there like session the corner at a higher speed and tell you what you're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. That was amazing for me. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, I wish, I wish the whole like three hours was just me doing that. <laughs> right. And then we took it on the trails and I, I got to follow another coach. Um, and that really helped a lot too. Cause to be able to take those lines and kind of use those skills, skills at like higher speed on turns that I hadn't seen. What did you change about your technique as a result of the clinic? You know what it is? It's funny too, during the race, um, I wasn't doing any hip hinging and I wasn't, I didn't have any bike body separation. Like I forgot all, it was my first mountain bike race of the year. I forgot everything from last year. And For I, people that want to know what hip hinging is or anything else you can check out. We did a, a full video and podcast on this, uh, with Lee McCormick from Lee likes bikes. It's how to be, how to be a faster mountain biker on YouTube, or just look for the episode with Lee McCormick. Tons of good info on there. And there's a branch over part of one of the turns and I had to like duck. So I didn't hit it. Mm. And when I did that, um, I did it like, uh, like last second. I wasn't looking ahead. Another thing I'm bad at is yeah. looking at my tire and, uh, my body got in the right position. The bike like separated from me and I just railed through the turn, <laughs> but that was like the last lap. <laughs> and I was like, Whoa, Dang it. Yeah. I know but how you, to do you this. It. Yeah. 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 So I just, it's just those like, um, I don't know. I'll throw this to Amber. Do you have any like activation things that you would do before a race for like descending or handling? Um, or do you just, you're good at it. It just happens. Um, at, over time it did get to the point where it was just natural and it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't something I necessarily had to practice, but it's something that I did practice almost daily in my, my riding. So I always made sure that in my training, whatever habits it was that I wanted to execute in a race, I would try to practice in training so that it's not something that you have to think about. And then mm-hmm. in those moments where you're just on automatic pilot, you're doing the right thing. The mm-hmm. problem too with us right now is there's no real, maybe one place in Reno to mountain bike in the winter. And then we go down to California. Yeah. Where, where it's open. And I think I need to, before the race, I'm going to find that same hill and just session that hill until mm-hmm. I get like, as my warm up, yeah. so I can mm-hmm. uh, get that separation. Yeah, you refer to it as a problem, but it is really legitimately an opportunity because it's a way yeah. for you to go faster. I mean, this is something you can improve right now and it will have a direct impact on your very next race. Yeah. yeah if yeah, you exactly. know how to solve the problem, then yeah. it's an opportunity yeah. right if there. If I could turn. I think that another spot, if you don't have like a little, um, like a little section of trail, like you're talking about, or a little hill to do it on a great way to get that bike body separation, get everything into place is just figure eights in a parking lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and chances are you have some sort of parking lot. Cause on the dirt and this was a little off camera thing. And there was like a little rain rut is that that answer puts in a little bit of fear in my mind, Got which that's a, a big limiter for me too. Right. Yeah. So in the parking lot, I'm like, oh yeah, I can bend the bike over everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to hit that a whole bunch of times with increasing speed. And then it's weird is um, the, you guys, everyone knows this but me, but as you do it better yeah. it, and you go faster, it feels better. Yeah. Like, right? Like right. Uh, going faster with better technique feels safer. Yes. It does. Which is weird. Yeah. I know. Momentum kind of becomes your friend. Yeah, right? And then it's like, it grips so hard. You're instantly like, rewarded for doing it right. Yeah. yeah, you, yeah. You and then it. I didn't have to, this is really cool because you'd you, you'd have to, you'd be able to coast up the next hill. And when I did it right, I had to pedal like once up the next hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I didn't, Huge. it was like out of the saddle. Gunk, gunk, gunk. I just imagine doing that. It's like coming out of every corner in a criterium. 
the more speed you scrub off, the more you have to regenerate exactly. and it just wastes you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would recommend anyone, because you do it on the trail and you see a new turn each time and kind of at Amber's point last week, it's new load each time yes. mm -hmm. and there's a new fear sensation. Mm -hmm. But when it's the same turn, especially this one was like, I don't know, I feel like every mountain bike course trail builder should build like a little... Yeah, it's a like really good idea. 25 yard. Turn track, so to speak. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. um, to be able to do this. And then we yeah. went the other way and it was great that way too. And the part of the thing about mountain biking that's different from road, I mean, every corner and road is a little bit different, but I mean, it's like, okay, yeah, it's either more or less off camber, more or less sharp, but on a mountain bike, you're really having to choose a specific line. Yep. And that's, that's really, that's really different. And that's where going out and pre-writing the course probably would make a lot of sense because you can kind of pick those pinch points or challenge points and maybe session those. The problem that I do mm -hmm. is I don't session them mm -hmm. or in the warm up, I don't get there early enough. Maybe I can ride part of it, but I never stop. And two, it's usually a single track and there's other people. There's social like, pressure. Get out of the way, everybody. <laughs> right? I need this. But I need to do it. Yeah, I, I actually need it. There's social pressure against that for sure. You feel like you should just ride the course. And you feel like, uh, and, and I'll admit this for sure, even for me, there are sections and I go through and I'm like, man, I really want to repeat that. But then in the back of my head, it's going like, well, if I'm repeating that, That'll number one, just that's not normal. Number two, it throws other people off. Number three, it would make me look like I'm trying to work on something before the race. So Which like, okay, by exactly. <laughs> so all those things, your ego yeah. says no to all of those things, but you have to swallow that and it, it's going to make it better. One thing I want to cover really quick with this, you mentioned the fact that turns change constantly <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, on road too, yeah. um, on mountain bike with greater variance, but that's why you have to be so solid on principle. Like yes. you have to have the things that don't change, which are what you do with your body in terms of the positioning and you know where you're looking at sort of stuff. You have to have that sorted. So then you can at least rely on that being a constant and then that allows you to deal with the varying terrain a little bit better. The fear side is different though, uh, for sure. And that's where like, like you said, Amber, pre-riding the course and working over those sections hopefully reduces the fear. Another thing we worked on, and then we'll move on from this, but mm -hmm. it's, it's keeping the pedals like like almost flat during a turn with slightly waiting. And I found that I could, uh, I didn't need to jam that foot out for all turns. Mm -hmm. And it allowed me to actually lean the bike over a little bit more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is yeah. That, you don't, is it, well, I don't, I would disagree with your pedals being parallel, allowing you to lean the bike more. In fact, that's, yeah, that's, that's not wrong. right, but it may make you feel more comfortable to do so. Like yeah. there are so many situations where you don't need to drop your outside foot. But if you have to be agile from turn to turn, I mean, if you're just lean and lean and lean and lean and the parallel feet exactly makes a lot right. of sense. Yeah. And I saw a coach do that in front of me. He yeah. railed some turns like super quick and uh -huh. he just had parallel feet the whole time, yeah. maybe a little bit drop on each side, yeah. but, but I was like mm -hmm. trying to just exaggerate it all. I don't know. I got so many problems and we shouldn't even talk a about lot it. going on it's, up there. It's, it's, <laughs> so much. Like Amber said, don't overthink it. Read <laughs> the turns, right? Don't well, ever, you can't tell someone who overthinks things. Just don't overthink things. Because then they think about not overthinking. <laughs> That's true. Quick note that we did on, talk last, last week about um, cornering on road. And I just want to just mention for the record that cornering on a road bike on road surface is really, really different than the body position that you're going to mm. need on the dirt. So That's a good point. I don't lean the bike, right? Principles are principles are similar, though. Yeah, the yeah. principles are similar. Principles yeah. are similar. Like, like you said, such a good tip for people is wait on the outside pedal because then that starts a chain reaction of, of, of proper positioning thereafter. Yeah. And then keeping your chest low on the road is super important mm -hmm. if you're like trying to hold front end traction and on dirt. Like you said, Nate, the branch kind of helped you. I, I totally in my mind just saw like bike instructors or like guys that are doing clinics, like mm. using a limbo rod for yeah. people on a turn or something. That, that could be, be good. That would be smart. That's interesting. Um, but that do, really helps. Do you ever intentionally weight your inside hand when you're weighting your outside foot? Um, 
Once in a while I do. Mm. Yeah. But it, but generally speaking, it does come pretty naturally. Like even if, you know, and again, this, this comes from doing this over and over and over for years and years and years. Um, but if you don't want to overthink it, just wait on the outside leg. Sure. And then it'll happen. Oftentimes (laughs) you'll end up counter steering just naturally because your body will want to do that. Like we talked about last week, like when you start to think about pushing on that other hand, in many cases it's too bad. And that was just, that was just the drill that resonated with me is weight on the outside foot, weight on the inside hand. And those two things kind of balanced each other out. It gave me, it was two things to think about, but they worked Mm -hmm. so well together. It felt like one. Yeah. And it, that helped me improve my turning too. I feel like the the bike actually starts to lean over more when I do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to rant on one thing on that really quick. There was a bike clinic uh, pretty early on in my road racing uh, days and somebody was going through a turn and then the guy said, now put your hand on the inside or put your weight on the inside hand. And he went through a turn and he did it just fine. And he was like, now you're counter steering. And I was like, that's some bull right there. He was already counter steering. <laughs> he just didn't realize it. Cause I challenge you to go through a turn with your weight on the outside leg and then put your pressure on the outside hand and see what happens. You won't turn. Like it just doesn't turn then. It will feel or, so wrong. You won't. Yeah, you, yeah. Your bike will stand up and you'll go straight. So there's a, but, but if you, if you put, I think, more attention on the leg than mm-hmm. the hand, you're going to be more stable. Because anytime yeah. you're worried about putting pressure, strength, strain, anything into your hands and arms, it tightens you up on the bike. You end up not reacting as well to things. So Yeah. It's more important to be supple. Yes, exactly right. Yeah. Um, then, Chad, uh, we said that we weren't going to talk about it last week, but this week we are. Yeah. Uh, our ski trip. Yeah. And we're going to have uh, actionable takeaways in terms of what we learned from this and mm-hmm. then what other people can for cross training. Yeah, just a good demonstration of cross training, something that we used to build our aerobic conditioning that, wa- that didn't involve a bicycle. Yeah. So we went to, uh, so this is awesome. And now they're doing it for mountain bikes little by little, but, uh, the whole interior of BC has this lodge network basically. And like, there's these cabins that you can go to and you can ski at these cabins for a while, uh, for like a week or something like that. Mm. And they're now opening it up to mountain biking. Uh, some of them are, which could be interesting. Uh, you like heli bike basically, or you could pedal around, uh, which heli biking sounds like, Whoa. That's like, yeah, that's like some next level first world stuff, but I think you should have to earn it personally. We can talk about that later. So we went to one uh, powder Creek lodge where we were just touring all week. And it just so happens we, we actually picked probably the best lodge in this entire network of lodges. Pretty cool. Uh Um, shout out to podcast listeners, John and Shelly Peachel. Mm. Uh, they invited us up there. That was awesome of them. Uh, but I did 46 hours of touring in seven consecutive days. Yeah all at or above 7,000 feet. And so, we're basically moving the whole time. Yes. So I, I challenge you to go out and do 46 hours of riding in, in seven days <laughs> and not just get so bored you want to end it. I mean, it's right. it, it's actually really engaging. It doesn't seem like it. It seems mm-hmm. like, you know, it's just the sort of work that you'd do if you were riding level two or riding an endurance wattage down the road for hours and hours at a time. But man, it's just so much more engaging. There's so much more going on, so much more to see. Uh, it's just a whole different percept- perception experience. Yeah, we've covered this before. Backcountry skiing, you put skins on the bottom of your skis and you free your heels and then you can walk up the mountain basically. And the beauty of that is, is it so closely emulates the, the pedal stroke, the cycling pedal uh-huh. stroke. There's so much of the same joint actions and the same muscles doing the same movement patterns that, you know, they're not, they're not identical, but there's so much carryover, so much overlap that it translates really nicely. Yep. 
you get to the top, lock in your heels, take off your skins, and you have a really fun descent back down. And we would do like, I mean, seven to nine laps a day, seven to nine, not 79, um, seven to nine laps a day. And, and it was, in other words, 46 hours of that. And it's basically like, go walk upstairs and take two steps at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what you're doing when you're going up. And then wall sits coming down because it's basically on a BOSU. And that's like what you're doing coming down on the skis. Yeah, and it's a whole ton of aerobic work. <laughs> and then the downhill is more a bit of an anaerobic work. So it's still a nice blend of, of what you're, oh, very, yeah, very much so. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in some cases more than others, yeah. depending on your, your level <laughs> of stability. Yeah. The crash itself and then getting up from a crash and, and however deep powder is one of the most embarrassing and difficult things <laughs> imaginable. There's just no good way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd to put this on the I didn't take no. any videos of Chad struggling. No, we do have one no. picture of me probably just prior to falling. Yeah, It, it yeah. doesn't look good for it me. It kind of looks like you're a telemarker, which <laughs> yeah. is, people can look Let's at. Let's go with that. So it kind of looks like Chad's doing. really cool. There, like he knows what he's doing. There's a mountain bike photo from my last race where I wasn't clipped and I unclipped on something and I'm descending with only one foot in and the other foot's like out balancing. <laughs> <laughs> and there's someone behind me and the lady goes, click. Oh no. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> So, so I guess uh, to your point, Chad, it's much more uh, physically strenuous if mm -hmm. you are a beginner skier mm -hmm. versus an expert skier. Yeah, in a uh, lot of ways. Yeah, a lot of ways. But we did a ton of work. The interesting thing is we ate like kings because mm -hmm. at this lodge they have chefs that are incredible. And oh, chef. Chef Shannon in yeah. this case. Mm -hmm. And she made the most, like Chad and I ate like kings basically. We did not skip dessert. Didn't hold back in any way. No. <laughs> and Ch Chad lost so much weight. He came back and I like... It was weird. You were weird, weird looking. You were so skinny. It's crazy yeah. too, because I mean, we had big breakfast, packed a big lunch, mm -hmm. big snacks with those lunches, come back for hors d'oeuvres, then eat a big dinner, get up well, and do it all it's again. It's not weird. You're burning it. No, it yeah. makes plenty of sense. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, I thought you know, I would just eat regularly and lose a bunch of weight. No, I ate probably twice as much as I usually do and still lost a lot of weight. It's crazy. So we, we both came back leaner. Um, both lost weight from that. But the interesting thing is I use that is like, so a lot of people think of their nutrition on the bike as only something that they can practice on the bike. Mm. But for me, I looked at this as I'm, I'm a really yeah. bad eater on the bike. I don't eat enough. Um, and, and then I don't tolerate food. Well, well, it's because I just don't eat enough on the bike. Either. I'm not training my body to take that food in. Right. Yeah. It was actually really eye opening in that sense, because we would eat some full on protein laden, fat laden meals, depending on how you made your sandwich or mm -hmm. whatever you took with you for, for your lunch break. And then right back into skinning up a hill. Mm -hmm. So your body's still right in the midst of digesting your meal and you're starting to work at a pretty, pretty high yeah. level. Okay. I've got a stupid story. <laughs> Look, we'll pitch to Amber. Yeah. Everyone just wants to hear Amber too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but what, when I first started triathlon, I read a bunch of people say, you know, you have to eat because you're doing such long stuff. If you don't eat, you're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. So I would, and this was in college, I didn't know anything. I would eat a full big dinner and then immediately go out and run four miles all out. Oh, like right oh, out wow. of it. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is a bad idea. <laughs> yep. Through uh, the, the park next by the college. So, and, uh, how many first, times did you throw up? Never. At first it was hard, Best. but after a while I, I got better at it. Yeah. Like, so to yeah. the point of training your body. Exactly. And now I don't have any, like you guys oh, didn't eat. Yeah, you have an iron yeah. gut. I trained for it. So just the yeah. point there, you're like, I can't eat anything because my gut will have problems. Maybe right. it's self-perpetuating. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that you saw that too. Right. With training. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I, I, Again, like at some point I started working with a nutritionist who told me to have a gel 10 minutes before I rode and then have another one within 20 minutes. And I was like, really? I mean, I would kind of – usually I would get into it, you know, an hour or so before I'd even think about eating. And as soon as I started trying to eat more frequently, it was really weird. Mm, yeah. But then, you know, and, and at first it was like, you know, you're trying to get the gel down. And you're like, oh, this is gross. But after a while you start – 
developing that habit and then it's just like second nature and it feels good and you're training and better than you ever go day after day after day yeah after you can mm-hmm. recover so much better yeah. yeah on day one i just followed like my traditional habits and when we were coming up the last because every day you had to skin but like uh the lodge owners and the guides are so awesome they kind of there's another way where you could basically skin over and get close to the lodge and be done from the top of the you know skinning up but no way every day we went way higher so then we could ski <laughs> down and have an awesome rundown and on that last run, I was feeling pretty weak. Like it was like, it was close to bonking. Right. And I, at that point I was like, I am going to use this as a nutrition camp and I'm going to be better. And every day, and I actually didn't take as many sandwiches or anything else. I thought, what would I take if I'm actually on the bike? And I brought a lot of nutrition no, for I that. Didn't do that. And I tried to practice that. And I feel like that was one benefit. So cross training, if you're doing any sort of like endurance longer days like this, think it's not just, you know, we're, ta- we're not just talking about the physical adaptations with, you know, the energy systems, anything else like that, but maybe there's also something on nutrition you can do. Uh, when I go to Costco, I usually take two gels. <laughs> and the samples. I actually, and the samples. It's, a, it's a lot of walking, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to dispel one concern that I know a lot of cyclists have, and I'll probably create another one in, <laughs> uh, along with it. But I, I, I've heard a lot, of, a lot of time you hear cyclists talk about, I don't ski during the winter because I don't want to injure my knees. Mm. And it's a fair concern, right for sure. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And, but I got to say, I mean, the, the things you do damage, you know, when you twist your knee or typically your ligaments, right? Mm-hmm. How do they rehab those? Almost all the all the time that puts you on, you know, depending on the severity of the of the tear or whatever it is, they'll put you on a device that actually flexes and extends your leg. But then they gravitate you to the bike. And then yep. you move in that sagittal plane and you start to load the joint and you start to re- reestablish your strength and your fitness. So the bike is actually rehab for these injuries. Yeah. So it's not the strongest argument against skiing. Yeah. Um, and it just so happens I did actually injure my MCL. <laughs> I, got a, I got a grade two strain. So yeah, I know, I know. Um, I thought it was a knee injury. I thought I collided with my ski. Turns out I actually damaged the the medial. So what cor- you're saying of like the thousand different ways you could hurt yourself skiing. If you hurt your knee in a certain way, it might not stop you from cycling for long. That's true. That's true. I mean, there's inherent risk in anything, yeah. though. Yeah. But, well, I, but that's with always that. what skydivers tell me, right? <laughs> there's inherent risk in anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. Base jumpers and all that. But anyway, it's uh, it's on the men, so no, no worries there. The, the one thing that was surprising, though, is the first day I didn't have a real good sense of balance. I wasn't trusting my skins. I wasn't trusting my skis. And I, I did a lot of work with my wrists and my poles mm. to the point where my wrists were basically swollen for the entirety of the trip. It looked re- kind of kind of gruesome. Mm. But it was gross. I, I couldn't. Fantastic. It means I couldn't extend my or hyperextend my wrist, which on a bike, that's actually a crucial thing. You have to be able to weight your wrists. Mm. You can't always maintain like a hammer grip. Sometimes you fold inward and that position, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. So it did kind of open my eyes to the fact that I can through overuse injure myself in a different way that would translate to poor. It's not just knees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's something, and something, lots of ways. <laughs> lots so, of ways. and the point of cross training, I think that like when a lot of people look at, for me, like cross, cross training is almost entirely psychological. Like I need a break oh, yeah. from whatever I've been doing. And it's nice to have winter time enforce the, or I guess give me the opportunity to ski since I don't have it year round. And that's why I love to do it. And I think that touring in many respects is a better way than just doing the resort skiing side of things because of what you get going up. You don't have to work really hard, Um, but it was like a really good training camp in a lot of ways, especially for Chad and I, because relatively speaking, we were pretty low. I had a good ramp of training coming in and then a month and a half, two months beforehand, I got really sick and I was sick for like a month. He's ever been. I'm back on the bike. Yeah, the lowest literally in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Well, 18 years. Close so, enough. So if we were crazy, like fit, right? Like our mm-hmm. aerobic system was way topped off, I doubt we would have seen a bump. And in fact, I bet we would have gotten a bit slower from taking a week of just focusing on this. Perhaps. I mean, it, it, it really, 
if we're just looking at it in terms of FTP increase, something like this isn't going to nudge your FTP up unless you're coming from a pretty deconditioned state. Exactly if you're already right. reasonably fit, your FTP is not going to go anywhere. Maybe, maybe it does decline slightly, but mm -hmm. your aerobic fitness grows. Yes. So that aerobic base upon which everything else is built later on is wider. So it's, it's favorable for sure. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, I didn't get any slower. Amber, how quickly one. after swimming for many years, how quickly did cycling like, did you get faster in cycling? Really, really fast. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. It wasn't day one, right? You didn't no. come out with a 300 watt FTP. No, because there's a lot of skill involved and you're learning a lot. Of, yeah. It's <laughs> it's very different from being in the water. Number one, you're dealing with gravity. Yeah. That was new. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but I think that cross training, like you said, it's, it's really important mentally. It's like a mental break. But also, I think it's really important for injury prevention because yeah. cycling, you're working in one plane. Oh, your yeah. your mm -hmm. knees and hips are moving in one plane. You're, I mean, it's almost entirely aerobic. Well, anaerobic VO2, it's very endurance oriented, but it's not necessarily going to be as plyometric as something like skiing. And those types of movements, especially when you're doing external hip rotation, like you are in stabilizing when you're skiing, mm -hmm. those things are super important just for maintaining an overall general sense of athleticism. I mean, it's really, really easy to specialize, but the more you specialize, the more at risk you are for those overuse injuries. And so taking time off in the winter to do things like lift weights, go skiing, you're working on bone density, you're working on stabilization, injury prevention, general health. Those things are super important. So what'd you do? I agree more in the off season. Um, I did a lot of weightlifting and I did a lot of hiking. I'm a really terrible runner. I think we covered that last time. <laughs> but um, I would do this kind of fun thing where I would go out and I'd hit the trails and I would run uphill, but then walk downhill. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't stressing my knees too much on the downhill, um, but I was kind of doing intervals and it was I was just going according to the terrain, so I wasn't looking at my watch, and I didn't care how long I was out there. So it was completely stepping away from the numbers, and it was you know being outside in a totally different environment than what I would normally do. And hiking, you're stabilizing and having to pick your line in a different way than you would. It's really good. Right. Yeah. Hiking is really, really good for yeah. that sort of thing. I mean, I've had so many problems with stabilization in my hips and legs and everything else. And this is something that even I noticed from, from touring up there at Powder Creek Lodge was like, by the end of the week... I was, so you utilize, especially when you're touring because you have a, a, a ski that's flat, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's on a surface when you're skinning up that is, well, sometimes flat, sometimes off camber, but you're, you're basically, your leg is kind of forced into a specific position, but you use totally different muscles. Like I used way more VMO than I do naturally on the bike, which is bad. I need to use more. Um, but it kind of forced me into those movement patterns, more glute, more VMO. Yeah. And that's like my weakness, right? Where I don't use those enough. When I got back on the bike afterward, it took way less manual focus, so to speak, to yeah. control all of that. It was just happening much better. So there's that, that's like, uh, for me, the benefits was nutrition, uh, increasing aerobic, you know, conditioning because it was low coming in. And then the other thing was more stability because it was using different muscle groups, like you said. Yeah. So it was awesome. It was like, a, a, I, it, I've just chalked it up to a dream because it's I went skiing this weekend and it was terrible compared best, to that. And it's ruined skiing uh, for single me. Single <laughs> best vacation of my life. Oh, no it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyways, uh, but the, once again, thanks to John and Shelly Peachel. That was awesome. And if you guys are, do have questions about it, you should check it out. Powder Creek Lodge is so cool. Mm. Uh, it was amazing. And yeah. a bunch of cyclists. We were with brilliant doctors and cyclists up there. Yeah, we're actually awesome. back next year. Oh, yeah, you just, did just it. set that up last you night. You were one of the ones. <laughs> ah, I saw that email come through. Um, cool. Uh, okay. We're going to get questions? No, no questions. Um, yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah. We're first going to talk about what's going on this weekend. So, and, and we're going to have some actionable takeaways from this, but we want to build some suspense. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, the first crit of the season for us is this weekend. Ooh. 
Yeah, it's going to be fun. You're not going to be around to race it, right? <laughs> You're not going to come down? <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, so first of all, Nate, you're a Cat 4. I got upgraded. Cat Congratulations. I didn't, insert, I didn't insert claps if this was like a radio show yeah. right now. Claps and cheers. Uh, you're going to do three races? Yeah. In one so, Amber, question. <laughs> Have you ever done multiple races? Like, the pro yes. field, do you do multiple races yep. in a day? How do you handle it? Like, I think, what, two and a half hours apart? This maybe, is super Maybe common. sometimes it's like an hour apart. How did you handle it? This How? is very common, by the way, for, yeah. for criterium racing, if yeah. people don't know, because it's criterium racing is, is yeah. largely, you know, U.S.-based, but... You have these races aren't particularly long, so people aim to do multiple races. Short races, an hour. Short races with overlapping categories, so you have the opportunity to double up, triple up in some cases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Process goals. Mm -hmm. Process mm -hmm. goals are huge. So win each one. <laughs> <laughs> it's not really, not really a sure. Process. I think be the first one the across the line. Definition of an outcome goal. No, no, <laughs> just be across the line first. <laughs> I mean, if if you're going for upgrade points, then sure, yeah, go just go for the best result you can in every single race, or pick one that you want to prioritize over the others and then use the other two to work on specific things that mm. maybe you're struggling with. Like maybe pick one to work on drafting and see how low your power, average power can be for the entire course. That would be pretty cool. That'd be a fun That's challenge. Awesome. That's, That's actually a good idea. We did exactly that. So when I raced on the Clover team back in like 2008, 2009, we would do the Masters 1, 2, 3, and then the P1, 2 was directly after. So we would actually oh. pin our numbers <laughs> on top of one another so that you would line up for the second race, pull off the, the Masters 1, 3 numbers, <laughs> boom, you're rolling. <laughs> but, but we would race the Masters 1, 2, 3 race with the intention of doing well. So we'd strategize, we'd beat ourselves up, we'd try for high finishes, high points, mm -hmm. premium prizes, etc. And then we would race the P1, 2 race with no other goal than to survive it just sit in and basically motor pace <laughs> yeah yeah is, it's great yeah and the reason it's fun to try to find your lowest average power in a race like mm. that is it forces you to be super efficient so you have to use the draft really well you have to corner efficiently so the less you break into the corner the less you have to accelerate out of the corner um, and all of those are really really important skills when you actually want to win a race so you mm -hmm. can pick you know one of those races and and just you know Pick a certain thing in each race to focus on, I'd say, and, and make it like that. Mm -hmm. And adjust Smart. expectations, too, because if you're doing three crits in a day, you're, you know, by the last one, you're going to be pretty <laughs> right. tired. Yeah. So. I might not do the last one. Uh, so it's going to be my first race is a four. It's mm -hmm. all four. So that's probably the one that I should go against or try the hardest in. Because mm -hmm. And the reason that you're saying that is because uh, – I guess, why are you saying that? Do you well, think you'll have the best chance at placing well, or is it because you'll have more people that you can get points from by both. beating? Both, because the next one is a 35 plus one, two, three, four. So I'll be going against cat one 35 plus razors mm -hmm. who don't slow down at 35. Like they're fast, oh, right? No. That's so when they're starting to get so that's actually a really good one where I should on that one try to be efficient. Yeah. Because they take the corners fast and efficiently. And mm -hmm. if I could get good at that, that mm -hmm. would really help me be mm -hmm. a better rider. It's yeah. something to keep in mind. If you beat a one, two, or three or a four, points. you get points. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so you're saying I should win them all. So there's more there it's might good. be more people that you happen. could get but points are, from. Are but you clear on what goals you're gonna apply or, or pursue with each of those races? Are you well, still putting that together? Talking about it. Right at this so moment. We're, we're formulating <laughs> that plan right yeah. now. Okay. But the, the, the point is you have to finish at the front of the race to get points at, at all, to get any points, right? If you don't finish within, if it's a really big field, you can get points in a criterium, I think up to 10th. Is it 10th? And, and it's, deep. it's, it's not, deep. not very deep no. road races. You can get more points a little bit deeper. So even though this is a thing for folks to weigh, even though you have more people that you could p potentially get points from, mm -hmm. if you really have no chance at finishing in the top 10, then it's not a good idea to probably prioritize the results. Yeah. That's where you want to prioritize. Yeah, I, I have a, a better chance at being top 10 in only cat four than in a one, two, three, four race. Right, exactly. Obviously, right? Yep. So do you know the size of each of these fields? No, I'm just looking at past years, probably around 50. 
Okay. Because mm-hmm. well, one of my suggestions is that in one of these, um, ideally the one with the most writers in it is for you to try to stay positioned within like top 10, 12, maybe 15 writers. And that's just big, spend the race targeting that alone. Yeah. And that's a big part of being efficient. So using, I mean, if you, the fir- I mean, you guys have probably talked about the accordion effect and the crits, like yeah. the further back mm-hmm. in you are, the more you're going to have to break in each turn, the more power you're going to have to put down to come that out of the course turn. especially. And you don't want to be at the very front of the race either, because that means you're going to have to follow all the attacks. <laughs> yeah. But if you're right in the, that kind of top 10 area and learning to float there is really, it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really good thing to work on. So, uh, for a lot of, we've done uh, some great videos with uh, the Cliff Bar team, with a handful of others, some local races too that were really fun, some some criteriums. And, and we actually have up on YouTube, you can look up, we have race analysis series with that. We're going to be recording our races this weekend as well. Um, so we'll have GoPros on there. Uh, aerodynamics be darned. We're still going <laughs> to put those GoPros on there. <laughs> Such a penalty. I know. It's rough. Such an know? arrow penalty. Yeah, it's like it is. The, the sacrifice. Oh. Yeah. Well, you wax your chain, so it balances out. It's legit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then I'm going to be just racing two races, but two and a half hours apart. And that's where I wanted to ask you, Amber, mm-hmm. uh, for a race. Uh, these are short races. I think that the first one is, I think they're both 50 minutes for me, right? Yeah. Um, so 50 minute races, two and a half hours apart. What would you do in between two and a half hours of race, or if you had a two and a half hour gap between races, like uh, nutrition or resting, what would you focus on? What would you do? Uh, 100% do a recovery shake within, you know, as soon as your race, your first race is done, get a re- recovery shake down. And I would do at least 10 minutes, cool down, spinning, and then go take a nap, go mm-hmm. to a restaurant, eat a pile of pancakes. You know? <laughs> Where do you take a nap at? Uh, our, 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 our hotel's <laughs> super close. I oh, not nap. Nice. Go like do that. that. That's, that's incredible. If you can, it's great. And yeah. if you can't, whatever, you know, lay Two down, and a half hours, put your legs though. up, um, just chill out. Whatever is going to be relaxing, go watch a funny movie. It's actually the best thing you can do is take your mind off. Yeah. Like leave and, and come back. Go yeah. do something that's fun and enjoyable and makes you laugh. And then, yeah, come back and not run around and play with my toddler. <laughs> Okay. Actually, that there. might not yeah, be a no. good idea. Honestly, <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. That could work. Because it, it, it certainly emotionally helps. How about right? this? Yeah. Not stand on the side of the race the whole time, totally. watching all the other Definitely ones and not. BSing with everybody. If anything, sit. I mean, if you want to watch it and yeah. try to glean something from each of those I mean, races. Hey, if you've got teammates racing or friends that are out there, go to your farm for sure. I mean, mm. whatever is going to be fun. I mean, if you're having fun and you're engaged, it's going to bring your whole – I mean, what you want to do is – switch off the sympathetic system from the race and shift immediately as quickly as you can to parasympathetic and parasympathetic is your rest and digest. And that's when you're socializing and you're laughing or you're laying down with your legs up. I mean, whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be, but just find a way to kind of just chill out, you know, disengage, disengage. Awesome. Nate, you're doing something the next day. Well, first of all, you're picking a race. that's a mentored race. Well, I guess you don't really oh. get to pick it, but that's an interesting thing. Cause I want to talk about mm-hmm. upgrade points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a skills clinic the next day. Yep. And, and I should be doing, doing these for years, obviously. <laughs> Every writer should. They're really, yeah. really helpful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So these skill clinics, the, the cool part is you get better. Uh, but then on top of that, you also get an upgrade point yeah. or depending on your category, three upgrade. I, I think points. I'm going to get two on this one, two upgrade points. So to give people an idea, um, in terms of what that equals, and I'll go into a criterion and you can look, this is USA, obviously. Right. Exactly. It's similar though in the UK, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's pretty sure I, I've watched videos on it. They, they have upgrade points and categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do have, a, I'm not yeah. sure what the, the structure the point are, is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you are curious about how upgrades work, uh, for the U S you can go to blog.trainerroad.com. We have, uh, something from cat five to cat one, how road upgrades work. Um, so if you are in, that would be like out of a five to 10 person group, uh, getting two points would be like getting second place in that race. 
So that's what you get for going to this clinic, which is pretty cool. Uh, if it's an 11 to 20 competitor group, that's like getting third place. It's like fourth place if it's up to 50. And if it's over 50, it's like getting fifth place. So if you think about that, that's a really hard fought position to get in a criterium mm -hmm. and you can just get those points from a clinic. That's great. And then you also get one point extra point because in some cases you should ask the race organizer about this, but they have mentored races where people are trying to become coaches or trying to, I think maybe to become like cat one or pro. I think that this is another thing that you can do to like help that, but you can mentor a race if you're a faster racer. And then if everybody that does that race, then thereafter comes in circles around afterward and you tell them what you saw that was going right or wrong, then all of those people get an extra upgrade point. So you're going to get three points already this weekend without anything regarding two, your but position. Yeah, maybe three. Well, three, if you get go to say, or the, the mentored race and the skills clinic. Cool. So okay. the skills clinics only apply to cat five and four, right? I think so. And then the mentoring. I think only cat five and four as well. Okay. I could be wrong though. So the um, other thing that my other strategy is I have... I think an hour between the cat four and the one, two, three, four race. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is just keep the sugar high. Mm -hmm. And actually during the four race, um, there's the beta fuel from, um, SIS. SIS. Yeah. It's actually really good. It's, uh, I think it's 90 grams of carbs, but it's the right combination so of fructose versus, yeah. um, glucose mm -hmm. and you mix it up and it does, it's not overly sweet or pasty. It kind of nice. just tastes like, like a sports drink. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was going to have that during the race to try to be maximum and then have more afterwards because I don't want to come down. I don't want to come down at all. If it's an hour, right. I'm going to no pretty point. much spin for a little bit, rest, and then start warming up again. Yeah. Right. You want to, you want to have a little mental kind of parasympathetic chill out. Disney. So even if it's five or 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so when you finish, I do recommend doing a recovery drink. So where the, you have the four to one carbohydrate to protein ratio, but then yeah, just keep sipping. So you said something in the podcast on this too. Most protein comes in 20 gram servings. Mm -hmm. So that do I need to take all 20 no. grams and then do no. 80 grams of no, 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 carbs? No, no, no. Yeah. no, no. Yeah. You can do like 10 grams of protein. Yeah. Yeah. And then 40 grams carbs. Was that how you would do it normally? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a lot. And it, it I mean, depends on who you are, what works for you, but that, you know, that's enough. Good place to start and yeah. feel, see what, how you feel. Yeah. And it's not like a huge volume. It's not going to sit real heavy. It's not going to taste really sickly you know yeah. it's yeah and for this too i would go for fast protein mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. a whey rather than a casein i want to throw something out there for a process goal for you okay Ooh. so as far as the positioning in the top 10 that's easier said than done right <laughs> it's, it's hard that's, <laughs> that's why it's it it's really hard yeah and the thing with crits is you can be you know fifth wheel and then less than 10 <laughs> meters later you're at the very yeah, back one, and you're watching, one turn can take yeah. 20 spots away exactly and then you're watching the front of the field go around two turns ahead of you and you're thinking i'm never in a million years going to get back there so a really great tip that um i've told a lot of people on this i'm going to throw this out to you when you're in a crit if your handlebars are in front of the person next to you you control the line so if you're going through a corner and the person next to you has their handlebars in front of you you have to defer to the line that they take. So if they're on your outside and they cut in across you, you have to, you have to back off. That's the only way to get through the, the corner safely. So when your handlebars are in front, though, and you control the line, like you can be the one that actually gains position through the corner. So a really good thing to do in the middle of the race is just to say, I'm going to move my handlebars past two sets of handlebars. And then as soon as you do that, move past two more sets of handlebars. And what it does is it breaks it down for you. So let's say you get shuffled to the very back of the pack and you're thinking, oh gosh, I'm never going to get to the front again. Breathe. Because the second that you start to feel overwhelmed by that, mm -hmm. forget about it. 
So to, to get rid of the overwhelm, just think, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I just have to get my handlebars in front of two sets of handlebars. And that's very doable, right? You do that once, you do that twice. And sometimes all you have to do is do it twice and you're back at the front again because the same, the same thing that can happen – I mean you can get shuffled to yeah. the very back. And then if you position yourself well through a couple corners – you can get shuffled to the very front really quickly. So Great idea. it's a really good thing to focus on because it breaks it down and makes it very doable and it keeps your focus so that you don't, as soon as you get overwhelmed, your focus is gone. Yeah. So it's a good thing to, to you try. You get kind of like, um, you don't want to get impatient. You're like, right. I got to get to the front right, right. now. Yeah, exactly. Like, and then it, you got to do a thousand watts. And, right. And you're fired. Right. Yeah, don't go, don't go out in the wind and try to blast past <laughs> everybody. I'm, I'm afraid because I have good fitness and I don't want to have that, right? Because mm-hmm. that would be the a bad way to race. Right. Um, I have two qu- questions. First, or one process goal I've seen, maybe for the last race, it's Cat 4-5, mm-hmm. is to kind of tail gun it by watching videos when it uh, accordion or fans out, roll through strong mm-hmm. and, and, and go off the front. So maybe go through at 400 watts, let the field come back up and then keep doing that practice of Pete does here locally. And mm-hmm. I see a lot of, if you can, do you think you can thread through a field that well? Or are you talking about going around it? It's a big road. Like I, I'm, the videos that I'm watching, mm-hmm. there's room to, but we've to, talked about how cat four fives doesn't really string out. And it's usually just a mass of riders riding side well, I, by I, side. I, so I've, I probably watched, I don't know, 10 different race videos on yeah. this. And, uh, each one four times. That's all I, I mean, I just. So what would be the objective with that though? That's my question. What are you trying to learn with that? I, what I want to do is when the field slows down, mm-hmm. that's a good time to just roll through and keep going mm-hmm. and so, get used to it, doing that rather than being goal? like, sit up. What's your goal though? To win the race? No, I don't know to win the race. Just practice that. Okay. Practice that one thing. Yeah. Even going by people, like as Chad said, if I go, maybe it's in the gutter going by people when I'm going 27 mm. and they're going 23. Yeah, Can I do that? Speed conservation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Now are you talking about rolling through or attacking? Um, rolling through at 400 watts or so, mm-hmm. not really attacking, but just enough where my momentum's going and I'm off the front and then I probably won't attack after that or we'll see what happens. It's going to be tempting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can get out front of the field. It's really hard to just <laughs> turn it off, but Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, you don't like that no, one? No, no, I don't like That's big. <laughs> Just flat out, I don't. No, I like it. I think it's a viable no, no, race strategy. No, exactly no, the, right. The Nord- it's, a, it's, a, it's a tactic that absolutely can work, but unless there's a bigger thing at play. I mean, the reason Pete does that isn't because he's like, I just want to carry momentum because carrying momentum makes me happy. Yeah, but Pete, he's doing that Pete's because- Pete's times to know how to do it. Nate's mm-hmm. trying to learn how to do it. Exactly. Yeah. So, Are you saying I should wait until I actually win to try it? No, 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 no. I'm not saying no. That, that's okay. that's cart before well, the horse, right there. But so when should I try it? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is a great time. You got three races. Sure. I mean, consider one of them throwaway. I don't even think it's throwaway. I mean, it could, no, could you, it could work. It could push you up there just that one time, and you feel good, and you're in front of people, and you got a gap, and no one's chasing. Yeah. There's a great opportunity. The worst part is, I know racers in the field will be listening to this. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing none of this stuff. Oops. Yeah. Guys. I would just, yeah. In my mind, I would just align that. That very that that specific process goal that you're going to try to perfect or figure out, I would align that with some sort of outcome goal rather than just I want to get good at it. I would that's that's my opinion. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, question for you, Amber. Yes. In racing, do you guys have the? Ter- I've heard it before. Did, shutting, slamming the door on people in a turn or shutting the door. Yep. Can you describe what that is? Yeah. So we were just saying that when somebody's handlebar is in front of yours that they're controlling the line. So if you're coming up on, let's say, a right-hand turn and you're on the very inside of that turn, so somebody's on the outside and they're on the left, if their handlebars are in front of you, 
as you're coming into the turn and they take the turn really, really tight in a way that doesn't give you room to go through the turn at the same time, that's called shutting the door. Because they're essentially putting their body in front of you like this if you're watching and it kind of makes a T. And if you were to keep going and not back off, you would probably end up T-boning them. Mm -hmm. So it forces you to have to back off. And that happen when road narrows too. Right. And it's not a very nice thing to do. I mean, generally speaking, a, a good kind of thing to keep in your head when you're in a crit or any group ride situation when you're going through a corner is follow the fishies. That's mm. what I always tell myself. It's like, yeah. it's like you're in a school of fish and you're all moving through the corner together. So, I mean, you want to keep a relatively consistent line so that you're not putting anybody at risk. Yeah. Um, that said, it does happen and people do it and don't realize that they're doing it either. It's just, it's right. not something you want to necessarily do on purpose. Just kind of be aware of who's around you, but. That's what I was, I bring it up because I think in cat four, probably even cat three, people will try to fight you if you do that because they say you're not holding the line. Mm -hmm. But then uh, I know with Cliff Bar and other uh, watching analysis videos, last lap P12 race, oh, yeah. the it teammate- the Gloves are off. If the, the teammate yeah. does, if the teammate doesn't do that, somebody comes up in the, on the inside, yep. like if you don't shut the door on somebody. I uh, want to make a really strong clarification here though, because there are things that the pros do that are very, very aggressive, mm -hmm. but there's a huge difference between doing that in a pro one, two field and doing that in a four or five field. Yeah. And I've, I've personally seen in, I mean, so one of, one of my pet peeves is in interviews with people who race in Europe, including me, you talk about, oh yeah, there's a lot of bumping and a lot of contact. Well, the truth is we try really hard to avoid that, even at the pro level. And sometimes it does become necessary, but in those moments where it is necessary, the people involved in that contact situation are really, really, really skilled. Mm -hmm. And so they're mm -hmm. not necessarily putting each other at risk. It's a risky situation anytime you come into contact with another rider, but it's something that you want to avoid if you can. But then people hear these interviews and they're like, oh, the European yeah. riders are super mm -hmm. aggressive and they're bumping. And, yeah. and then they get into a local race and they start bumping. And I was in a local race once and we were, I mean, we had 12 people in the field. It was not a critical time in the race. It was sort of lining out. So I wanted a wheel and I started coming on the wheel and the girl <laughs> threw her elbow into me, which let's be honest, she was a lot smaller than me because most people in the field are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was internally, I was kind of giggling about it. Like, that's really cute. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not going to do much. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, I, I was really concerned about that because I thought if she's willing to do that to me, hmm. you know, and this, yeah. and it was a one, two, three, four race. So I'm, I'm thinking you do that with somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, who's mm -hmm. not as stable or skilled on the bike, and you could cause some serious problems it's just totally a dirty unnecessarily. Tactic. It's a dirty yeah. tactic, period. But, you know, at the higher level, you can get away with doing it without taking the field down. Right. Yeah. So don't do that. Well said, Jen. Yeah. Unless you're yeah. the P12 race going. Yeah, I've, I've had my bars hooked one time. That is the most oh, helpless feeling ever. It's horrible. Where someone actually gets their bars yeah. into your bars and moves your front wheel over at high speed, typically. Yeah, and scary. when you're a taller rider, you're at risk of that because there's all these yeah, tiny really? people that can come up yeah, and for sure. hook your okay, bars. Not at the same height. Yeah. That's the, uh -oh. if everyone was at the same height. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Not something to think about. I stayed away from that guy for the rest Don't of the race. Don't overthink it. Can I, I, can I throw in one thing on this really quick? Uh, so growing up racing, oh, a hockey player and racing motocross, like contact was very much a part of, of everything that we did. Mm. Um, and I had to learn pretty young to, to, at a young age to let go of the frustration, the anxiety or anything else that I would feel if somebody else was being overly aggressive. And I think mm. that if you find yourself in a race scenario where somebody is throwing elbows needlessly or whenever anybody slams the door like that or closes the door down on, or basically shuts my line out, whenever mm. they do that in a race, the last thing I do is get upset. Right. 
because just it, avoid that person's it, wheel. <laughs> exactly. At yeah. that point, you've you've <laughs> marked that person as a person that will do that, and mm -hmm. you'll have to deal with it appropriately. But the worst thing you can do is let that get to you mm -hmm. and make get you into a situation where you're tense or, or just let it rattle you. Yeah. Yeah, Even a exactly. local race here, it was strung out, and I think it was a. I don't know. It was probably a cat three, four, five. We're strung out. And I obviously had the wheel and someone comes up and just tries to like fight me from a wheel. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm like talking to him. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> like yeah. yeah. I said, fine, you can have it. And sure. I just, I like, I think I attacked or something, but yeah, yeah. it's but like, you, well, I, like what's not worth it. Exactly. The stakes yeah. are so low for us. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, in the pro, it's different. You're trying to make money, but like the stakes are so low yeah. and Even, getting a broken pelvis, ugh. like, even in the even in the professional ranks, respect is the bottom line. Respecting mm -hmm. your competitors, and I, Brad Huff actually had a really really great quote about this in one of his interviews after he won the national championships, and he was talking about those final few corners, and he said, and I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, sorry, Brad, um, but it's Our really okay. <laughs> yeah. it's it's a really great quote. He said. I realized that we had to, you know, in order for any of us to have a chance, we had to be respectful and keep each other safe. So mm -hmm. even though it was coming down to like three of them and it was the national championships in the back of his mind, he, what was in his mind in that moment was respect and safety. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. it wasn't just like, I'm going to take these guys to the ditch to, I mean, nobody wants mm -hmm. to win like that. So learning to learning it's really important to learn the skills so that you can be aggressive and do so safely. Mm -hmm. And a really important component of this, and I'll throw this out here too, because I think it's an important thing is um, to stay safe in a crit and things happen all the time. It's really intense. Yes. Not everybody, you know, no one's going to be looking over both shoulders before they come off their line to, you know, to come into a corner. Right. And when you're coming into a corner, people set up wide, you come in close on the apex, you exit wide. So there's, there's naturally going to be a pinch point in that apex and people are going to be coming up the inside, trying to get through faster. And people are coming in the outside. It gets a little bit crazy. The thing that you need to do to stay safe and be respectful and keep other people safe is just pretend it's protecting your front wheel. It's protecting your front handlebars and your wheel. And the reason for that is your rear wheel doesn't, it uh, doesn't pivot. So if somebody hits your rear wheel, whatever, I mean, you're solidly sitting on your saddle. It's mm -hmm. not going to take, it's not going to take you out. But if somebody taps your, hits your front wheel unexpectedly, it's going to twist and then you're going to hit the deck. And so your front wheel is the most vulnerable part of you when you're in a race. And so are your handlebars because your handlebars can knock your front wheel. So all you really need to be concerned about is making sure that your um, Brooke Miller, one of my former teammates, used to call it the box. The box around your front wheel and your handlebars is what you need to be concerned about mm -hmm. and making sure that you're not putting that in a compromised position. So if you're overlapping wheels, do you have an exit at that moment? And if you don't, you might want to back out of that spot. And you know what? That's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have that, you know, if you're not moving up, you're moving back. I'm sure everybody's heard that. But there's just a constant ebb and flow within the Peloton. Totally. And so you want to be constantly finding a position that's safe for you and safe for the people around you. <clears throat> and, you you know, if you – and the other thing about this too is if you keep yourself safe, <laughs> chances are people around you are going to be safe too. Because mm -hmm. if you're putting yourself in a compromised position where your wheels overlapped in a precarious situation – and that person comes across your front wheel and you crash, you know, every round, everyone around you is going down. But if you don't do that, by keeping yourself safe, you're actually keeping everyone else around you safe. So and in, that, in that same vein, trying to remain relaxed yeah. when it comes to those situations, yes. I, I can't advocate more strongly um, contact drills, just bumping drills on the yes. grass. And I wouldn't, 
you got three races, but you do have time to kill too. It's not the worst idea to roll around on the grass for a little while and just bump shoulders with somebody and get a feel for your partner. How, how little consequence it actually carries if, you, yes. <laughs> if yes. you stay relaxed. Yeah. I mean, you can handle you can handle some pretty hard shots if yeah. you stay relaxed. No, actually, the Cliff Bar guys said we were going to play uh, tag. Yeah, at their thing on the and it's I'm so sure fun and those it's guys so beneficial. Me over, they're all pretty good. <laughs> yeah, don't let them. They'll be like fellas. Don't like let them attack me aggressively. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun though. It's fun because I mean the consequence there is you fall over on the grass and you look like a fool for a minute. But yeah. it, it's something to absolutely worthwhile to get That's comfortable. That's a good drill. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And don't the you point with your juniors. Sorry. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. We absolutely we actually do. Uh, they have to do team races. It's like the same concept of like putting like two legs in a potato sack from mm. two different people, nice. where they basically have to like ride but holding onto each other's shoulders and they have to ride from one point to another or they have to keep contact the whole time with like head and shoulder when they go from one point to the next yeah yeah Yeah, and i just want to emphasize that the point of those drills is not so that you can bump people in the race right the point of those drills is so that when you're in a race and you're in close proximity with other people you feel confident in your own ability to manage if something were to go haywire and Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think I mentioned this last time, but a good analogy for this is when you're learning to drive before you've learned to drive, the idea of driving on the freeway is pretty scary and intimidating. But at this point in our lives, we've been driving for so long and honing these skills for so long that getting on the freeway is not something that you even think about. You don't, I mean, there's, you don't get in a panic when you get on the freeway, but you can't control what anyone around you is doing and accidents happen. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's never a guarantee of safety there, but you're not freaking out about it behind the wheel because you have the skill to manage a situation. You feel confident enough in your own ability that if something were to happen, that you'd manage it. And that's what the, that's what those drills yeah, exactly. are about. Think, think about a, a twitchy 16 year old driver getting on the freeway. Someone looks like they're going to change lanes into you. Yes. The reaction is to jerk yeah, away from correct. it. Same yeah. thing on they the bike. Out. You see someone coming towards you, <laughs> you don't move. You just, they, they hit you, yeah. it deflects, you keep on riding. Can we if talk- you're relaxed and you're right. used to that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, another, so I know how, how races go in Reno because I've done so many races in Reno and I know the feel. I know everything's going to happen. Um, in Northern California, what it seems like, because I don't think I've done any crits in Northern California, uh, is that uh, the lower categories, it's almost always a sprint finish. Mm-hmm. Can you, Amber, tell it, uh, do you sprint at all? Yes. Okay. Lay it on me. I've got <laughs> 36 hours to learn. Uh, just great. Let's I'm just joking. It. I'm right joking, out. everybody. Uh, no, but for everyone here, do you have any tips for sprinting in crits or 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 practice? Um, and then I Pete had some tips that I wanted to share after that. I just want to say sprinting really truly comes down to positioning. And one of the things I used to talk, I mean. So when I first started, I actually was a really strong sprinter, and that was my that was my forte. And I eventually became more of an all rounder. I was never a pure sprinter though, so I wasn't. I mean, early on, I was my team would would lead me out, which was super fun. By the way, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but the, I, the thing that I always told myself about sprinting is when you're coming into those final laps, it's all about positioning, because when you get to that. Usually people open up their sprint two hundred meters two hundred meters from the finish, depending on how the course plays out. Mm-hmm. But um, it's it's a fight for position to the 200 meters. So you actually have a couple of finish lines. One is getting yourself in position to do the sprint and then sprinting for the finish line. And the more people that you get around before you open up your sprint, the fewer people you have to get around in your sprint. (laughs) So actually it's really worth a huge energy expenditure to get in position. If you're really, really skilled, you can rely on your skill and less on power output to put yourself in position. And that's the ideal scenario. So really what you want to do is be um, really good at positioning and putting yourself in position to sprint. So 
One tip that I have for this, which is really important, and not a lot of people do this, and I'm giving away all my secrets, but <laughs> you're welcome. No. This is now your job. <laughs> Pen in hand. They're ready. All right. Go scout the finish. So go to the finish line. Put your bike in the gear that you think that you'd want to sprint in given the terrain. Pedal backwards for 20 pedal strokes. And that's roughly where you want to open up your sprint. And then you can really start to break it down. Like, is there a corner between where you'd want to open up your sprint and the finish? In that case, you want to be first wheel through that corner because you, you know, you're not going to have enough room to get around anybody before the finish line. If there's not a corner, pick a landmark, fire hydrant lamppost, whatever it is. Crack in the street. Crack mm -hmm. in the street. Well, crack. you might not be able to see that, but it, it should be something that when you're totally cross-eyed at the end of the race mm -hmm. will be, still be pretty obvious to you and uh, something that you can see when you're in the group. And that's kind of your landmark for where you want to open up your sprint. It may or may not always coincide with where they mark the 200-meter line, and the 200-meter line might not be marked well enough for you to yeah. see Process, when you're coming yeah. into your finish. Mm -hmm. So then the whole race, every lap that you're doing – watch how the field is moving coming into that position. So try, you know, taking the corner before it on the outside line, try taking it on the inside line and get a feel for what kind of line might be good. So how, how can you position yourself to get to that point where you want to open up your sprint? Well, um, a lot of people don't bother to go look at the finish line. This is a huge thing to do in road races where the start and finish line aren't the same thing. Take some time to go look at the finish and have a mental picture of what it's going to be like so that as you're coming into the finish and everyone, you know, everyone's redlined. and That's so key. Yeah. And I think uh, on this one, what I'm doing is I'm watching, like I said before, a lot of YouTube videos mm -hmm. because actually there's kind of two sets of tight turns early on and watching that, even in the P12, nobody's moving up. Yeah. Like, so it's kind of like halfway through the course, if whatever position you're at is going to be your position coming out of the final turn. Yes. Like by a couple of wheels. Yeah. Um, a few years ago at North Star, we did the Tour de Nez and I won the crit up there. And there, it finished in the North Star Village. And we came from a parking lot kind of up through this very, very long chicane. And it was on cobbles, but it was just like this zigzag all the way to the finish line. And coming into the chicane, I mean, it was like 600 meters from the finish line. But looking at that, pre-riding it, I was like, no one is going to be able to make a yeah. position through this yeah. chicane. So the first person in the chicane, it doesn't matter how good of a sprinter you are, is going to be the person who crosses the line first. And I knew that, but it's so far from the 200 meter line that I don't think that a lot of people were thinking that way because I attacked like berserk going into that chicane and I came across the finish line with a huge gap and I wasn't even all out sprinting for the finish. Mm -hmm. It was just a matter of positioning. I feel like I need, John's going to be there on the side of the road with like a megaphone going, sprint, Nate. Sprint now. <laughs> like, yeah, sprint now. <laughs> just tell like me a robot. Right. Yeah, like a robot. Like, just... like, tell me exactly what to do. Yeah. No, I'm just joking, but that would be that'll nice. Be fun to watch. Yeah. Um, you jump up and down and wave his arms. Yeah, this is the time. Yeah, that'll be fun to watch. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, stay tuned to uh, to Nate Strava and to our, to our Strava to see how it goes. Chad, you're not racing this weekend, right? Um, or this season. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Probably just local stuff. Cool. Yeah. Um, let's get into the questions. Let's do that. Uh, Steven's question. He says, what are Chad's thoughts on intermittent, intermittent fasting? Well, he's going to get more than he bargained for because we're all going to share our thoughts. Yeah, good. Um, but, uh, <laughs> he says, uh, uh, so anyways, he mentions that it was championed by Fung uh, at all on Chad's reading list. Uh, so, and you can find, uh, the, the book list and everything else on, on, uh, geez, I think it's on the forum too, but you can find it on our blog. Um, okay. And he says, what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting and synchronizing this with a trainer road plan? Uh, he asks, uh, do you do it on the free days, meaning it being the intermittent fasting, putting that into practice on free days or days when you don't train 
And how would you work that with a triathlon plan where these are all filled with swim, run, or on low intensity days with a fasted state ride? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are Chad's thoughts on the scientific principles of yeah. the insulin? So, so like I said, I'm, I'm by no means a be all end all resource on this matter. And while I do um, enjoy reading Jason Fong and particular authors, it doesn't mean I agree with everything they say. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I find it interesting anyway, and especially when they can support it with a good amount of science and research. And it, it, it's interesting whether or not I'm going to apply it, whether or not I agree with it or kind of other matters. Mm. <clears throat> but in the case of intermittent fasting, or as plenty of people refer to it, intermittent eating, because it's really the same thing, right? <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah what, what is it first? So, people don't know. So, so I was just going to talk about fasting. It, fasting is just not eating. Uh, that's, that's it. That's just it. don't eat. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. It is that simple. Um, and, and the benefits, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the, the benefits of fasting are, they are pretty well supported. So it is legit yeah. uh, how well it overlaps or, co- or works with training for improved performance. It's another matter, mm. um, but it improves your insulin sense, ins, insulin sensitivity. And that's probably the big one. So all these people who dose their system so frequently with sugar and they have high uh, insulin insensitivity, this is a way for a bit of a reset or at least to try to push them back into a, a more a healthier realm in that, in that sense. Um, so it lowers your blood glucose and anytime you lower blood glucose, you lower inflammation. Anytime you lower inflammation, you probably lower body fat in the process. All these things kind of tie together. So there's, there's an upside to it for sure. Um, big concern with lowering fat is the visceral fat. So not even the subcutaneous stuff that, you know, all of us are very aware of, but the more dangerous internal stuff that's mm. far more, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it provides a certain level or it can enhance your metabolic flexibility, how well you utilize different substrates. You know, you're not just a carb burner. You can also access fat. You can also, when necessary, utilize ketones. Um, and it creates a lower cost of energy. And in doing so, you, you become more efficient, less reactive oxygen species, so less oxidants, so that your antioxidant system can actually stay on top of retarding the, or, you know, balancing that, that uh, battle, mm-hmm. as it were. So I guess fasting is something, well, fasting is very old. Uh, it's been around for a very long time. Long, long time. Intermittent fasting is something that is very fatty. It's in vogue right now. I don't yeah. mean fatty, but fatty. Fatty, yeah. Uh, it's very much in vogue right now. Yeah, and so it really simply, I mean, there's there's all, there's at least a couple definitions I can think of. Some people will um, do like a drastically reduced caloric intake on one day, four to 600 calories. That's their daily, that's the fast. That's that entire day. That's all they'll eat. Then the next day they eat normally, mm-hmm. or maybe they'll do that for two days and eat normally. So there's a lot of ways you can shape it, but most commonly it's skipping breakfast and basically limiting your other two meals or all you're eating to a narrow window. Mm-hmm. So if you, you eat dinner at six o'clock at night and then you skip breakfast and you don't eat till lunch noon the next day and then dinner at six again, you've effectively limited your eating to a six hour window, mm-hmm. which means the other 18 hours or 16 hours, depending, whatever is, is a fasted. You're in a fasted state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's the concept. It's nothing too mm-hmm. crazy. So um, it's intermittent, but, so, but so is sleeping. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. This is what I want to get to. Like, uh, I mean, you, you fast every night when you sleep and then a lot of people, I mean, this is why you could also call intermittent fasting, like not eating, uh, in a lot of cases or just compartmentalizing it and shifting it around. But I think it's kind of misunderstood. Like, I think Fung, like, like Nate, we were talking about this. It's perhaps misunderstood in terms of like pr- whether it's what the objectives are or how to go about it, right? Well, um, okay. So on the forum, people – I've seen people misunderstand this and there's some great videos of fun giving talks. And he is mainly focused on um, general population 
and usually obese people yeah. losing I'm weight. Athletes, yeah, like and endurance what, athletes especially. Fung talks about strategies to try to get these people to lose weight, mm-hmm. and he says that telling people eat health, eat less, and eat healthy foods, just like caloric restriction, um, doesn't work for those people because they 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 lose and then they end up gaining more in the long run. It works in and, the short term, but it's short term but not long term. It's not sustainable for those people. Yeah. And what I've seen people say is. They take that as like uh, the strategy of doing that means that a calorie restriction won't make you lose weight. Mm. So scientifically, laws of thermodynamics, calorie restriction will always make you lose weight. And if you do it forever, you'll eventually die. Like you'll eventually (laughs) just nothing will be left of you. Truth. Um, And then, but but, uh, Fung says that for some people in the population, getting them to eat less, like if, if they only have five hours to eat, uh, they won't eat as much. Kind of handles itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They can't eat as much. It's, and it's, it's caloric restriction and they don't even recognize it for what it is. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's easier for them to do. Therefore, they lose weight and it's more sustainable long term. Mm-hmm. And the other benefits Chad talked about. But in our world as cyclists, it's a little different. Uh, we, one, I think just in general, anyone listening to this podcast, you are more disciplined than like 99% of the people out there. Yeah, that's Go to the, Walmart. Like you <laughs> right. are. Like you, you, you hang out with people that are cyclists mm-hmm. and you compare yourself to them. But the average person, you are head and shoulders above them. Right. Like uh, you're more disciplined. And also we're working out all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. I just I, – I hadn't heard of Fung and so I did a quick web search and looked at his website. And I just want to read a few of the bullet points that he has as benefits of fasting. So it includes improved mental clarity and concentration – weight and body fat loss, lower blood insulin and sugar levels, reversal of type 2 diabetes, increased energy, improved fat burning, increased growth hormone, lowered blood cholesterol. These are all things that you get from exercise. Yeah. Yeah. So just exercising, not fasting, you can get all of those benefits. So I think you're right. This is, this is geared more towards people who aren't already conscientiously implementing a healthy active lifestyle. Yeah, because Chad, it, it, just to your point too, last week, it's really hard to be doing two-hour rides oh, if oh, you're yeah. not eating. It's impossible. Oh, it's impossible, yeah. right? Depending it's on, I mean, brutal. unless you want to keep the intensity dirt low. And performance yeah. with time will, will decrease if you're not fueling yeah. it properly. And I, and I just want to like diffuse this bomb before it goes off in the forum. <laughs> when we talk about <laughs> when we talk about Fung, the way it breaks, it, it, the, his uh, short-term weight loss, long-term weight loss, how the things just don't amount to one another, how, to, how it's unsustainable for people to lose weight and stay there, there's a simple reason for that. I mean, you have a 225 pound man who wants to be 175 pounds. He needs to eat for a 175 pound man. When he gets down to 175 pounds, he needs to continue eating for a 175 pound man. But where it breaks down is these people return to their old eating habits. He Mm -hmm. starts eating like that 225 pound guy guy again. And of course he balloons back up. And in the process, maybe did a bit of anabolic damage and uh, maybe Mm -hmm. did some starvation. Probably probably lost some muscle mastering it. Yeah, yeah. plenty of negative effects and carryover into back to that 225 pounds, which probably balloons at 240 pounds and, and he just uh, hollowed himself. This is the other part that people misunderstand is, yes, your basal metabolic rate goes down with calorie restriction because you're losing weight. Mm-hmm. If you're 240 pounds, you naturally burn more weight. Um, just more being, calories. More calories, sorry, yeah. being there than you are at 170. Sure. So yes, it goes down and you have to adjust your eating for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I guess there really has to be like a hard line drawn between weight loss and then improving performance, right, Chad? Yeah, and to overlap those two things via this method, um, intermittent fasting, 
and, and I, I recognize that there are some parallels with doing fasted rides. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're talking about. Right, that's a and, very different mechanism. And, and with the fasted rides, I don't want them to be 100% fasted anyways. I would prefer that there were some protein ingested, some BCAAs mm -hmm. or something to, to mitigate protein degradation, which is a very real threat when you do a hard workout at night, sleep, get up in the morning, cortisol's high, and then you hop on the bike again without any intake. Mm -hmm. Right, and you've depleted glyco glycogen over the course of the evening, and then you're burning through whatever you have left on the bike without having replenished it. And some of it yeah. is probably eventually going to come from protein. So, so there's, it has to be balanced. It's tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I will say one of the things that I did use depletion rides for, um, and you talked about insulin sensitivity. They can be very effective. <clears throat> um, they have a place, I believe. They though. do have a place. And one, I'm not a huge fan of these like for implementing as part of your training plan, but I will just throw out there like one positive benefit of this that I used to do is, um, during a stage race, it gets more and more difficult to totally replenish your glycogen stores between stages. So as the stage race goes on, the harder and longer the stages are, your total glycogen, you know, you're just depleting over the course of a week. Even if you're taking your recovery shakes and eating like crazy, it just becomes almost impossible to keep up. So one of the things I would do is get up in the morning before a big stage and just do like super easy, not like, you know, not doing intervals or anything, but just do like 30 minutes on the rollers fasted and then have my breakfast. And what that would do was mm -hmm. it would allow my insulin sensitivity to increase so that the breakfast that I had would actually, I'd be able to <clears throat> take yeah. in more of the breakfast than I would have if I hadn't done that. Mm -hmm. And that's just a really, really specific use. And I'm not, <laughs> the other thing I want to say about that is that um, I'm not sure that the benefit outweighed, lo outweighed the loss yeah. of sleep. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah. Because it's tricky. Yeah, so, so some, you know, it's, it's a balance, but that was one, I think reasonably effective use for a fasted ride. And again, it was, I wasn't going out and doing like a two, three hour endurance ride. It was just rollers, super low intensity, very specific. It wasn't about weight loss. It was just about glycogen stores for the work ahead. Yeah, and I'll say my, my personal experience with intermittent fasting did not yield better performance. Mm -hmm. I lost weight really well, but my performance tanked as a result. Like, different person. Yeah. Yeah. You, you haven't really recovered from that. <laughs> it changed me. <laughs> to, to, to Amber's point, this is so huge. You said it last week. Mm -hmm. I want to say it again. Is that it is so hard to train when you're not eating like that. Yes. Every workout, you want to shoot yourself in the head. Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about that, but yes. No, I mean, I did it. It can be miserable. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's really, <laughs> really miserable. I, I, well, I don't know what the word is. But, um, Hyperbole. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what it is. I can't say that. Um, I got you. Yeah, it's just, it makes everything so, so hard. And then you think that you're not a good cyclist and like these shouldn't be hard and you see other people doing workouts and mm -hmm. it's like, this is a zone two workout. Mm -hmm. This should be easy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then sweet spot, people say sweet spot, that should be easy. Mm -hmm. But then it's not, if you're not eating, it's Ooh. really hard. Sweet spot yeah. more than any type of workout requires food. Oh yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah, huge. Yeah. You burn I, have, about that too. I have experimented with a lot of different stuff over the course of my career. And I do remember I tried fasting for a couple of days and just working out like normal. And I remember Ooh. I had like a, I don't know, two hour ride with some, I don't know, basic LT intervals. And then I had a weight workout and I was destroyed. Like I almost couldn't walk the next morning yeah. and it took me out. I mean, it totally destroyed my training for almost a week. Huh. It took me that long to recover, feel normal again, and be able to put out yeah, no the boy. power. And, and that's not good. That, I mean, that did, I mean, yeah. it was, yeah. it's not beneficial. What's the point? Yeah. 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 So weight loss. Sure. Maybe probably. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of performance enhancement and, and, a, and a heavy training schedule, absolutely not. Right. Yeah. And, and if you're if you're training and eating to perform well, chances are the weight's going to come off anyway. So yes, that's a yeah. Just like we talked about, point we revisit yep. often <laughs> totally because true. it's a 
A strong one. Uh, Clint's question. Uh, he says, I recently found this podcast after moving to Chicago and knowing I would have an hour commute in, in the car each way and needed to have something engaging and worthwhile to listen to while on the road. Uh, so he says, well, mission accomplished, gents. Five stars. Thank you. Um, and he said five stars. You can leave those reviews. That'd be awesome because we're still ahead of Lance. So it's just great. Yes. Um, uh, so keep that going. We need to extend our lead. It's we're, the only way we'll ever it's a be short, Lance Armstrong at anything. <laughs> at anything. It's, a short, it's a short break. Slam dunk contest. Yeah. yeah we're just established. Establishing, we're establishing the break right now, so we need to extend that, right? So, um, but then you can also, and you can do that on iTunes or Google Play, anything else. But you can also go to trainerroad.com/slash/reviews. It's a new page that we have. Um, if you're a Trainer Road user, you've used Trainer Road, that sort of thing. Uh, it'd be awesome if you went on there and, and left us a review. If you feel like we don't deserve a great review, you can let us know what we can do to be better. Um, uh, but please head over there, uh, trainerroad.com/slash/reviews. Uh, we appreciate five stars in all places. So, uh, moving in from that, he says, "I'm." thinking about getting a DEXA scan after listening to one of your podcasts. Uh, DEXA scans, for those that don't know, dual x-ray uh, technology that gives you a breakdown of basically the different types of tissue that create who you are. So you can get a really good indication of fat, of lean mass, bone mass, that sort of where stuff. Where it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Specifically where it is. Yep. Uh, you can listen back. If you look up DEXA scan in our podcast, you'll find entirely too many episodes. Way where too we, many. We're very revealing about okay. our personal body it's composition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, he says, uh, the place that has a DEXA scan also offers RMR, which is resting metabolic rate, basal metabolic rate is another term that people use that is, is similar to Close that. Close enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then VO2 max test as well. Uh, one thing I want to cover with this actually is, uh, for DEXA scans, we've mentioned that they're very cheap and accessible for us here in the state of Nevada, which they are, um, depending on the different location, it may be a different cost, but in many States you do need like actual, like a prescription from a doctor, uh, insurance can, it's the only thing that can pay for. There's some complexity. And even so. here, if we want to do, uh, bone density, a bone density scan, we have to have a referral from a physician. Yes. So uh, check that sort of thing for your specific area that you're in. It says, I guess my question is what can I actually do with all this information that I would glean from these three tests? How can I incorporate it into my training and what can I learn from it? If anything, simply put, is it worth it? These are great questions. Mm -hmm. And this is and before, kind of why we all did, we did these. Before tests. we launch into this though, I want to say, I don't, I don't want the intent here is not to diminish the importance of of lab testing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does have its place, especially in the realm of research, um, with higher level athletes. I mean, there are good purposes for it Right for athletes at most of our levels. Well, this is, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. I think, uh, so it's, so there are certain like, like a VO two max test is one that's very like uh, it's a sexy test, right? Like, well, uh, it may not be, you may find out that you don't have it's, great numbers. It's anything after. but sexy. Yeah. It's an ugly affair. But, but the point is it's like a, it's like a, it's like a glam number, right? That people are going for. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. So much it's, spit. The process itself. <laughs> no, you want to brag about it, but that's the point. Yeah. Thanks Nate. Yeah. So that you're trying to like, you know, get like a big number. Usually it's defined and this is bad, but usually it's used as like correlation to how fit or your potential. You know what I mean? Did you do any of these? Yes. Um, I did two tests and I, I want to tell a quick story about this too, because I think it <laughs> kind of illustrates some of our points. Um, I'm working on talking closer close to the microphone, to the mic. you guys. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so my husband raced Cat 1 and he's been a Cat 1 for decades now and he raced it really. Um, so he, he had, he was well on his way in cycling by the time I started. And I remember I was going in to get a VO2 max test and I was kind of nervous about it. And so he told me the story, which I think is very illustrative. He was going to get his first VO2 max test and he was really nervous about it because, of course, you want to have a good number. Oh, and yeah. he confided to his dad that he was nervous about this test. And his dad said, why are you nervous? 
you've already won bike races. You've already proven that you can win bike races. So what what more can this possibly tell you? Excellent point. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And it's a really good point. I mean, you numbers don't win bike races. Bike racers win bike races. And so it's the, the numbers are information. It can be useful. And like Chad said, it has its applications, but it's not a determinant of your potential as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we jump into VO2 max? No, nope, because I want to know what her VO2 max was. <laughs> that's, that's what I mean. Jump oh, yeah, yeah. Right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll go to the other ones. Sure. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's knock that one out. So I got two tests over the course of my career. One showed 64 and one was 67. Got it. So not off the charts. Well, Chad and I are 62 when we did it. And yeah. Jonathan was 68, yeah. I believe. Yeah. And then back in 2008, this sounds like a brag, but it's not. It's just I, with that calculation, based on my threshold, based on my body weight, I was probably in the low 70s. And the interesting point about this is the fact that um, it's not a static number. No, it certainly it not. can change. It changes yeah, a lot. A lot. Mm-hmm. And a big misunderstanding. And, and so like, and I know, I know very like high performing athletes that their VO2 max numbers, perhaps earlier on at a different point in their career, were higher than they are currently, yet their performance is better now. Yep, right? another solid point. So it's not necessarily, like, I guess just furthering what you said, is is it's not a determinant mm-hmm. uh, straight across of your end performance, right? No. These numbers, though, it's kind of interesting. So European pro, mm-hmm. say 67. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Chad, when you were low 70s, you got what? Almost fifth at nationals by like a quarter second. Yeah, like a we, national we, level. Maybe a different example of like <laughs> racing prowess. <laughs> I mean, really different, different. That's commonly referenced by Nate. Probably one less pump on your. You would have been podium at nationals. Yeah, but that's a good. So that's that's like the. Um, He's nationally competitive. Is the yeah, point. Yeah, and people might not know is men mm-hmm. naturally have a higher VO2 yes. max. So Amber's is actually much more impressive. Yes. Um, Very high. Than Chad's as a low seventy mm-hmm. is yours as a high. In the high high six, which is why yeah, there's that's why she's a better why, but at a higher level of one of the it's not it's not surprising considering that she's an international professional. If she if her VO two max was forty (laughs) eight. It would be very surprising. Be hugely surprising. They'd That'd be really, really impressive. You. I mean, like my <laughs> well, skill was off the charts. There's skill and there's um, uh, efficiency yeah. um, and the ability to uh, what main a high percentage of your VO2 max, right, Chad? Yeah, yeah there's a lot of other um, physiological parameters. Yes. This mm-hmm. isn't the only one to focus on. In fact, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really weak one to focus on, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- there are plenty of other things, right? I mean, when you're looking at it, it's, it's more about how you, I mean, you could, if you really want to get into the weeds and start to measure <clears> these <throat> things, you can measure things endlessly. But I think that like, and this will be a common theme here, but this is the benefit of having something that's uh, more of a, more of a direct, we're talking like a performance metric that you get from power in terms mm-hmm. of an output. It's actually measuring the output. And the cool part about something with power is the fact that you can adjust that and use it to guide every second of well, your I mean, training. If you're trying to improve your three-minute power, you don't need to VO2 you know, max test. You just need to work on your three-minute power. I mean, if it's one thing one month <laughs> yeah. and it's something greater the next month, you're on the right track. It doesn't yep. matter what happened to your VO2 max over the course of that. And chances are probably nothing did. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's there's uh, I've talked before about running science. I think it's running or the science of running. Mm-hmm. Steve Magnus. Mm-hmm. He's got a whole chapter. I think it's titled "The Myth of uh, VO2 Max," mm-hmm. and it's it, it's rife with studies that show all sorts of changes in performance with no changes in VO2 max. Changes in VO2 max with no changes or decrements in performance. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's a weak tie. Mm-hmm. I'd say this is probably. I mean, we'll get into to the resting metabolic rate one, but for me, this is the one that has had absolutely no bearing on my training or performance. It hasn't changed a single yeah, thing. If you train to elevate your VO2 max to go in next time and get a higher VO2 max score, I mean, you're absolutely missing, you're missing the, the point. point. Yeah. yeah, you're way better off chasing your FTP. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or just performance outcomes. And, performance, yeah. and, and two, uh, for people that do score lower, I think there are... I, 
I, I can't remember the guy's name, but I believe there are pro European pros, like World Tour Peloton people in the 60s, like yeah, low 60s. That don't have exceptionally yeah. high VO2 max. Because there's other things that we said make up for yeah. it. Right, right. I think Cavendish is one of the classic examples of this. Like he was tested. His numbers were far from impressive. But look at the success that he's had. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the most successful bike racers in history. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And yeah. So like, I mean, like, just sit back and think about that. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, something to add to this too, a big misnomer. I see a lot of people or, or misunderstanding, I should say uh, a lot of people reference, you know, Nordic skiers have higher VO2 maxes oh, yeah. than cyclists and, yeah. and sure they test higher, but you have to understand what that's saying. That isn't saying that necessarily they're a more fit individual, mm -hmm. but it is saying that there's more muscle recruitment in the activity that they're doing. Yeah. We talked about that before. I mean, mm -hmm. you involve more muscle mass, you're going to require more oxygen to, to, to make it create power, do whatever. Yeah. Yep. So there's going to be a higher VO2 max, a higher volume and of oxygen. higher heart rate along with that too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, Absolutely. The max heart rate that I used in training was, uh, I think I was using somewhere around like 190 for training on the road in cycling. And then I remember uh, when I was living in Austria, I used to go do Nordic skiing as, mm. as cross training. Mm -hmm. And I would wear a heart rate monitor because I wanted to, you know, at least get credit for, <laughs> for yeah, yeah, yeah. training. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I saw my heart rate get up to 211. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it goes yeah. high. Yeah. But yeah. I would never use that as my max on the road because yeah. I, there's no way I could get my heart rate that high on the bike because I'm just not recruiting that much muscle mass. That happens to triathletes too or running. It's way higher yeah. mm -hmm. than, than cycling. Yeah. Can we cover resting metabolic rate, that yep. test? <clears throat> what is that, Chad? Let's do it. Uh, resting metabolic rate, just, just yeah. the amount of calories your body uh, utilizes basically keeping you alive. Yeah. So if you lay in bed all day and don't move at all, this is how many calories you'd burn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And minimize thinking. You don't want to yeah. be solving no, that problem. I was sleeping all day. Yeah, 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 sure. yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, it's basically keeping the lights on. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that we, or the way that this, this can be tested in a number of different ways. We sat down and we had, uh, I think that we had a gas exchange. Was that right? Yeah. On you this put one? a mask on, a you mask sat on? in a, uh, yeah. yes, I remember yeah. very clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, put in a lazy boy, lean back, said, don't move. Don't even like play with your phone and you just breathe in. Yeah. Like a half hour. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was it. Um, really tough test. Physically, really <laughs> Super tough. hard. Way um, better than the VO2 max. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is all of us got numbers that we then cross-referenced to like basic online, online RMR calculators. calculators. Mm -hmm. And it was within, I think mine was within like 20 calories. Uh, yeah. And then the biggest spread was like 80 calories, I think, for all three of it us. It was all close enough to work with, especially considering what you're going to do with this information, which yeah. um, mm -hmm. I think mine was sure. 2,200 calories. Mine was the most and yours was like 100 calories less than me. Yep. And then Jonathan's was like 1,900. Uh, mine was 1800. Yeah. 1800. 1850. Have you done this one? I have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I did it was because I had, I had been coming, I, w I had come off a period of severe overtraining and mm. I, so my whole hormone profile was all messed up. Everything was wonky and I was trying really hard to get back on track. And my concern was that the damage I had done with the overtraining may have affected me, my endocrine system such that my metabolic, my resting metabolic rate might've been off. And so it was more like just a check-in to see how my system was recovering. And at the time it proved it was, I was actually okay, but, um, it was, that was, that was the reason for it. it didn't really have anything to do with training or performance. It was just, it was like a health check actually. And what was the number? Do you remember? I don't remember. A big temptation with the resting metabolic rate is to basically use that as your, <clears throat> your intake baseline for what you're going to be taking in in food and then think, well, if I train and I do 200 calories or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but what I've found is that 
compared to your actual resting metabolic rate and what you burn when you go throughout your day. Oh yeah. That's a very different number. It's very different. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to find yourself thinking that you're running at a 200 calorie deficit or 150 calorie deficit. But then every day you're like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling worse and worse <laughs> and worse every day. Yeah. I did that once I got this and it was, <laughs> I was on the wrong path. Yeah. Um, and it was, wasn't healthy for me. Um, if you have like some sort of like a fitness tracker or something else like that, it's pretty tricky to actually get a really good measure of your caloric burn, but you will at least see hopefully that it's your burn through a normal day is much higher than that. Remember, this is just yeah. keeping the lights on. So I have strong opinions about this. Um, <laughs> I think it's kind of useless test. Mm -hmm. um, it, you might want to lose weight because so it's all the other movement it's really hard to track. And then even, even with the power meter, it's still an estimate of how many calories you're doing. Yeah. So like trying to then match your calories for it, it's really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. In labs mm -hmm. though, I, I've seen studies where they, they put people in this like sealed box and they get all of your gas exchange. Yeah. And Direct calorimetry. Yeah. Yeah. Specific <laughs> amount of food and they can like do studies on that. Yeah. But for if what I say is if you're going to lose, if you want to lose weight, Maybe you you start with an estimate, and you, maybe you do use it as an estimate and say, okay, I'm, I'm burning 3,000 calories a day, so I'm going to start eating 2,800 a day. And then you wait, give it a good week. If you're losing weight, you're, you know, look at the, the rate of, of uh, weight that you're losing. And know this too is that it's really hard to count calories accurate. Totally. Accurately, right? Yeah. Super Extremely hard. hard. Try, try that with like MyFitnessPal and even weighing food. Like you get down to that, you still don't really know. Yeah, you don't know. And everything's <laughs> manufactured different. And you Totally. Uh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So... Uh, what I see on forums, people will say, you know, I'm eating a 600 calorie deficit each day and I'm not losing any weight. I'm like, well, no, you're not <laughs> right. Um, yeah. and they're short term with water and stuff. But over time, if you eat 600 less calories a day, you will totally lose weight. So what you do then is you think you're losing 600. We're probably not in a good way. That the, yeah, yeah. It all depends. If Especially for training. Yeah. If you're training, if you're obese sure, and that could be a good strategy. So then what you do is you subtract another hundred calories from whatever you're measuring and go from there. And you just keep adjusting until you get a more maintainable, mm -hmm. um, uh, weight loss. Rate of weight mm -hmm. loss. Yeah, exactly. So just, you're, you're not eating 600 less if you're not losing weight. Right. Right. I think, I, and I think you're, to your point, I mean, perf if you want to perform better, check your performance metrics, you know, not necessarily VO2, not necessarily RMR. If you want to lose weight, check the scale. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, yeah, the numbers are helpful in their information, but they're not going to necessarily predict or determine the outcome. There is one motivational part, and I've said this a thousand times, but I was going to say it. So on DEXAs, because you get yeah, let's both, get into DEXAs. We you get both the, the body fat and the muscle amount is that you can, this happened to me and I, everyone's going to groan. Um, I lost seven, no, I, I lost seven pounds of fat, but gained four pounds of muscle in three months. So the scale said I only changed three mm -hmm. pounds, but body composition wise, that was a huge win, mm -hmm. right. right? A huge win. Yeah. So that is the one part where I could see DEXA being extremely like motivating. Cause that, that happens to a lot of people, especially if you lift weights, you're like, I didn't lose any weight, but yeah. if you swapped your fat for muscle, like. Yeah. Right. And that, you, that's another right. danger of chasing a number on the scale. I'm, I'm all yeah. about the DEXA though. I like that. I, I think it's actually of these three tests, the most useful of I all agree. of them by a lot and just a useful test period because mm -hmm. changes in body composition are, that's good information. Mm -hmm. It tells you not only am I weighing less on the scale, but where's that weight coming from? I mean, it, it tells you just, just changes in where you're carrying your fat, what your visceral fat looks like. I mean, it, there's a lot of useful information. It really is. Yeah, but yeah. There, there's still the Amber's point too. It's the what's your primary goal, and sure. unless you're 
sometimes <laughs> when you are overweight and you do have a lot of weight to lose and you want to be good in cycling, your primary goal could be a certain body composition first before mm -hmm. you you attack FTP. Right. But once you get to a and a healthy weight. Then it's about performance. Yeah, and I think we all probably fall in that trap of where we try to like get oh, the number okay. one or two points lower, uh -huh. but then your FTP stays the same or goes down. Yeah. yeah. And it just it's just like swapping one for the other. I'm not even talking about this relative to performance, simply oh, yeah. that there's a lot of good information to be gleaned from a yeah. DEXA mm -hmm. scan. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. I think that it's a good thing to help keep yourself in track. Like uh, you can clearly see why bodybuilders would be really interested in a DEXA scan, right? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you get it broken down with your arm or for your left arm to your right arm, <laughs> your left leg to your right leg, your trunk gets split into quadrants like so you can really figure out if all of that work is increasing lean mass that sort of stuff for cyclists we're probably not as concerned with that with uh i mean I, I guess i had a little bit of that but it was more like a confirmation that my pt was working because a ton of it was glute focused and i was told that i was low on lean mass mm -hmm. uh throughout my glutes so then i worked on that and it showed that it increased but to be honest the whole point in the end was to improve performance and that's the thing about all of these lab tests is you really have to Keep in mind the fact that if you are a cyclist, chances are if you're listening to this, uh, if you're a cyclist that's chasing too. performance, it's <laughs> chasing performance, then you you should prioritize that. And I mean, thank goodness we have power because that's such a great way to well, measure that. And with all of these metrics, if you're going to use any of them, remember that the only thing that's really meaningful for what you're doing is how they change relative to your own numbers. Yes. So totally comparing yourself, if you're going to get a DEXA scan and you're looking at body fit, body fat composition or body composition, you know, comparing yourself to other people. I mean, it's just, it doesn't matter. Your physiology is so individual. Right. If you're going to use it as a, as a motivational metric for trying to chase performance outcomes, you know, remember it's, it's you against yourself. So it's, it's your progress relative to your numbers, not necessarily comparing with other people. So Indexes are going to be measured so much higher than everything you've ever read. Yes, <laughs> get ready. Yeah. Prepare to be disappointed Every, for the yeah. first one. Everything you read is then you have a caliper test in most cases. Like that's yeah. like the common percentage. Mm -hmm. And we found that at least for us three, it was roughly half of what we saw with the DEXA. Yeah, so that's just subcutaneous fat. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're seeing. doesn't get into visceral. So what you're saying is a or bad tactic would be to get DEXA scans repeatedly and then share them comparing yourself against two other people on a podcast. <laughs> Don't do that. Sounds good. Okay. But I, 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 <laughs> for the record. I was the skinniest once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't the fastest, but I was the skinniest. Let's close it out with Fiona's question and then we'll get into some live questions uh, that, that you guys have submitted. You can join us live every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific on Facebook or YouTube. Uh, Fiona says, hi guys, loving the potty. I assume that she's Australian because that, that sort of abbreviation. It's potty with two Ds, by the way. Yes, <laughs> we should clarify this. Thank Thank you, Amber. <laughs> says, uh, I discovered it a few weeks ago and have been steadily churning through the episodes. I train for and race predominantly cyclocross, although I dabble in road racing and crits and a bit of mountain biking in the off season too. I'm usually on the bike for 15 to 18 hours a week in the off season and 10 to 14 during the season due to a heavy race schedule of every weekend. That makes sense. So sounds like she genuinely enjoys riding, like with all of those different activities she does. And then in the off season, her volume goes up, right? Mm -hmm. It's like she, she genuinely enjoys riding a bike. It's pretty cool. Uh, so she says, uh, so I'm recovering and maintaining fitness during the season. That's a priority of hers. That's why that volume drops low. My question relates to FTP, sweet spot, and power output. I have an FTP of 240 and I weigh 53 kilograms, but there's no way I can sit at my sweet spot of between 201 to 228 for long periods of time, nor elicit a sweet spot training session of repeating that for 15 to 20 minutes over and over again. 
how is it possible to produce that FTP? Yes, I calibrated my power meter and it's in line with my previous FTP scores on a progressive upward trend, but not be able to actually sit at a lower power just shy of that. Is it simply a matter of training myself to do it? If so, how should I go about that? And that's really kind of what we're going to address this portion of that question. She says, I know in cross, I don't sit at a completely steady power output. Instead, it's spiking and dipping, but I also know I need to keep the power high without blowing up. So I do feel it would be helpful for my racing to have that sort of capacity. Uh, I'm going to touch on a couple of things and, and unleash it to everybody, but she's absolutely right. And if you look at cyclocross files and that sort of thing, you look at when we've looked at top riders profiles, we've looked at amateurs, everything else, but there are spikes and cyclocross is famous for the spike, but really what really decides it is the sweet spot that you sit at in between. Cause that's usually where people are sitting in between those efforts. Mm -hmm. So it is really helpful and it also makes sense. So we have, uh, we have, uh, uh one of the fill-in producers, Bryce, uh, one of our community managers, he like, he, he complains about sweet spot a lot. A couple of people here, uh, at the office complain about sweet spot. They can't, or they used to not be able to do it. Right. No, I'm one of them. I was, yeah. I was one of them that I complained about it before. Now I don't. Uh, and I'm not. Never. So like, like, What's like, changed? like addicts that have overcome, we'll share our experience. Um, uh, so, uh, one thing I want to say is that I, I think that this doesn't just break down. It's not quite as simple as just, you know, one thing or another. I think there are multiple parts to it. I mm -hmm. mean, there, there's the feeling side of things. There's the, the, the muscular endurance. There's plenty of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, physiologically, if you look at it, it it's like anything else. You, you, if you train it, you're going to improve it. Mm -hmm. So and in this case, we talk about fiber types all the time, the, the slow twitch, the fast twitch, and then those intermediates. So sweet spot is very much about intermediates. Mm-hmm which if you don't train them, they're, they're not there. Maybe you can go long and slow forever. Maybe you've even got a bit of a, a punch on the other side of things. But if you don't spend a lot of time here, and I'm a perfect demonstration of this, it's, it just doesn't manifest magically. Mm. You have to train it. And Nate's a really good example of <clears throat> the fact that it, it's very trainable. I mean, mm. it, so many of our subscribers are. We, we rely heavily on sweet spot work because it's quite effective. And, and I think Hunter, Hunter Allen said this years and years ago, that if you got good at one thing, make it sweet spot because you'll never get tailed off a race. You may not be so the high true. performer, but you're never going to, you're never going to get spit off. That's those moments in between that that's where most of the racing is done mm -hmm. is within that range. But the, these fibers, yeah. they're, you know, they're pretty much equally glycolytic and aerobic. So they use sugar and they use fat. And, and the, 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 the fact is they use a lot of sugar. And I think what <laughs> all of us come back to and what I think is going on in this case, what we all think is going on is that in this case is that there's not enough sugar coming into the system. Yeah. Mm hmm I've noticed that like when I have a big sweet spot workout and, and Nate, you're mostly responsible for this. Um, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when I have a big sweet spot workout coming up, I do not, that is not the day where I'm trying to pick salad. That's not the day where I'm trying to, you Unless know, you want to have a really miserable ride. Yeah. And then sweet spot feels a whole lot like threshold or hard, harder. Right. <laughs> um, it's a great way to make it feel that way is if you're not feeling it. Yeah. 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 Taking a lot of carbs. And, and I would say, you know, even, as a point of reference, I would say taking a gel within 10 minutes and then at least every 30 minutes thereafter. And if you need to set an alarm for yourself, do that, especially if you're on the trainer, you can do that. Um, super easy. And it's a really, really good way to just start building that habit in, into your training because it'll help with everything. This level of work is a huge burner. And yeah. when we talk Ooh, about yeah. that, <laughs> usually we're talking about how many calories it burns, but take a step further back or, you know, dig a little deeper. And we're talking about sugar in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, uh, after this sort of work, I really feel drained. I really like that. That's the one where I'm like recovery drink now, please. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah and I, I keep really saying sugar, but what I mean is carbohydrate, right? Yeah. Simple yeah. sugar, simple yeah. carbohydrate. Yeah. yeah. This goes back to, um, we talked about like, I've, I've had it too, where not eating or not eating carbs and you do these kind of workouts and then you're just like, 
but my FTP is <laughs> <laughs> a crisis, yeah. and I can't hold 170 for 10 minutes. Right, it's like, a crisis. Yeah, exactly. And then you think that either well, uh, everyone's testing is wrong. Yeah. Or my power meter's broken today. You or in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the shame spiral begins too. I'm because just different. Uh-huh. I'm different. I'm different than everybody else. I just can't do sweet spot. <laughs> yes. That's what it is, right? Yeah. That's like I'm a different too. human. Um, uh-huh. I've so recently, based on last podcast, I've been trying to hit that hundred grams of carbs per hour, mm. even on easy stuff. Mm-hmm. Man, it's getting easy. Mm. Yeah. It is like even easier. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it's really. I think I'm going to have an FTP bump here because everything's just. It's it's really easy. And the other thing too, even even while I do this, if I'm watching TV during sweet spot, I can last a little while. It's but then it gets the it the cognitive load. It goes up a lot. So I would uh, suggest um, Fiona to turn off the TV or put on a like a cycling race. Put on some up tempo music that you're familiar with. Eat your carbs, try that, and I bet you'll have a great sweet spot workout. Podcasts yeah. and mm-hmm. audiobooks, and at the beginning of the sweet spot powers. Yeah, you say that, but I, I can actually make those things work. I, I, I will say, I'm, I'm watching much, your cognitive load. You're much better. I know, but I'm, I'm watching like the Punisher. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but to, to further your point, I'm watching the Punisher. Right, that's my that's my reward. It's if good. I get on the bike, I get it is really good, and I only get to watch it if I'm on the bike doing uh, yeah. sweet spot. I like it. So. But I'll find myself struggling during the dialogue stretches. It's like, oh, come on, please let something happen. And then the action <laughs> yeah. happens and I sail right through the remainder of the interval. Yeah. So uh, yeah. something with this too, there's a psychological effect to even just getting like uh, aside from what you're using to 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 focus on during the during the, the actual stuff. It's really hard because it's a very uncomfortable position to work at. Mm-hmm. Yet you see that you're not at your threshold. So you kind of tell yourself it shouldn't be this hard. Right. And that spiral starts to happen. Yeah. And it Especially takes... if you're underfueling and you're suffering. I mean, really mm-hmm. suffering needlessly. And I told myself for so long, I just, I'm not good at sustained work. That's just it. I'm not good at it. Yeah. Because it was, it's really easy for me to punch extremely hard and then do that repeatedly. Well, what, I'd rather what it boiled do... down to me is I wasn't good at eating. Yeah. So I'd go into these all underfueled, thinking I got to make every ride about losing a little more weight, about getting a little bit leaner, about improving my strength to weight ratio by dropping the weight side of the equation mm-hmm. and usually dropping the strength side of it too, unfortunately. But I just wasn't fueling well enough for rides like this. So what I do, gravitate towards stuff where I can go long and slow and, mm-hmm. and just burn fat or where I can go short and hard and get through a workout in 45 to 50 minutes and be done with it before I actually do run out of gas. Yeah. And there's this part of, so you've conditioned yourself in one reason or another to believe a certain way. And that could be because of not getting enough fuel, anything else like that. But there's a big thing that I see with a lot of people with sustained work, or you see it on the opposite end too, Mm -hmm. really high intensity work or like VO2 work, something like that, where a person has just told themselves, I'm just not good at it. Right. And if you tell yourself you were just not good at a specific type of workout, I would be very comfortable betting on your performance being just not good mm-hmm. at yeah. that specific workout that you end yeah. up doing. And unfortunately, sweet spot is one of those things because if you don't, if you're not good at sustained efforts, if you don't have good muscle endurance, mm-hmm. you're not going to be a good bike racer. Yeah. And it can be trained and you can go through Everything it. can be Where's trained. Yes. Everything can be trained. You can improve at everything. It doesn't mean that, I mean, I'm 5'10", I might never be a climber like Mara Abbott, but I can train my climbing. I can get better totally. at climbing. Yeah. yeah so, That's kind of the cool yeah. part about being an amateur. We talk about that a lot yeah. of the time, but like be a climber for a year. You yeah. may not be the fastest, <laughs> Just but work it doesn't on matter because you're not paid to do it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but with this sort of thing, as soon as we started doing TT training, I decided to turn that part of my brain off that said I was bad at this sort of workout. Mm-hmm. 
and they got they got to the you know they're they're never easy but it got to the point where it's no more difficult than any other workout that I was doing of a different sort of structure. Yeah. And just because yeah, it doesn't so. come easily doesn't mean you're not good at it. It's supposed to be hard. And if you're mentally yes. put yourself in that mindset, this is going to be hard. It'll actually feel easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I'm doing it right now. Like I said, you're like, oh, this longest is how layoff feel. <laughs> I've ever endured. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm going through all the throes of learning to ride a bike again or learning to suffer on a bike. <laughs> my, <laughs> my butt's sore. I'm, I'm looking at my watch thinking, my, cal- my, my power meter's got to be off. Look, check out my Garmin, looking at his power match on. I mean, something's not right here. Right, right. No, I'm just, <laughs> just out of shape. <laughs> but I've committed to it and I know it's going to be rough for a little while and it's starting to feel a little bit easier with each workout. So, yeah. it, deeper level of empathy, everybody. I, I'm, I'm more in tune with what y'all are going through. You know, what's great about restart. that is you develop a deeper sense of respect for your fit self. Mm. Yeah. Oh, for yes. sure. Right. It's so hugely motivating dis- now. Yeah. The discipline that, that got you to that point. Yeah. yeah. And the cool thing is, you know, that you're capable of doing that because mm-hmm. you've already done it. Because you've done it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah there. it's, it's go really, there. really helpful. I want to step back for just a quick second because you were talking about how, you know, you were kind of looking at, I want to improve power to weight and it was affecting how you're eating and how you're training. Mm-hmm. Um, Really, really great quote. And this comes from Dotsie Bouch, who's silver medalist on the track. She's an incredible athlete. And she said this to me. uh, We were giving a clinic together, and it's just stuck with me, and I think it's so perfect. Just don't ever diet on the bike. Hmm. Wrong time. Just don't do it. A lot of people, I mean, (laughs) might get into the sport because you want to lose weight or you want to you know, chase a better body composition, and that's awesome. And certainly that will help performance metrics. But the time to do it is not on the bike. Don't ever diet on the bike. Mm Mm-hmm. That's awesome. It We're sounds cl- easier, but okay. yeah. We're going to close on that. That was great. I have nothing to add beyond that. Um, thank you, Amber. Yeah. Uh, and thanks everybody for, for listening or for joining us live. We're going to cover a few of the live questions that you've submitted. Once again, if you're just listening to this on a podcast, if you're able, you can check it out and join us live, but you can also join or see what, I don't know if you really want to see us, but you can see us as well on YouTube and Facebook. You can join in um, after the fact. It's all posted up there on archive. So you don't just have to join us live. Um, uh, plenty of folks saying kudos on bringing Amber back. The, oh, di- yep. the, di- guys. <laughs> the difficulty is Amber lives in Connecticut, not in Reno. So, yep. um, it, it, it was a very quick flight this morning. Just joking. <laughs> she was, she was still here. So, um, so it makes it more complex. Uh, let's see. My dad said hi back. Oh, he's yeah. listening. See? My dad's listening. Hi, he's dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, man, lots of discussion on intermittent fasting. Mm. Lots of people talking about it. It's, I mean, it's a super common thing. Uh, people listen to it on the Joe Rogan podcast or somebody, somebody talk about it. And then you forget that they're talking to general audiences rather than people chasing performance, you mm. know, it mm-hmm. really changes. Context mm-hmm. is really, really important with, with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Someone says, why is Jonathan wearing a hat asking for a friend? I think it's because they love your hair. Oh, yeah. I don't love my hair right now. I've got a barber appointment in a week. This is very important. I'm glad we're covering this. um, And we have our new Powder Creek hats. Oh, yeah, that's true. They're Powder Creek Lodge hats. Yeah, Yeah, they're good stuff. Um, Okay. I just keep scrolling through. Yay, Amber's back. Yay, Amber's back. There's no questions. (laughs) Cool. I guess that does it. (laughs) And a lot of people, man, a ton of people talking about... um, so one, one guy says, how does intermittent fasting work with labor jobs? In my line of work, I'd be afraid to put myself or my colleagues in danger due to sporadic symptoms popping up when energy is low. That's something to like, I was thinking about that um, with like our guides that we had on the ski touring trip. Mm-hmm. I want those guys to be so well fueled be, yeah. because yeah. you know, you do not want, and, and I'm sure that you have a job like that, but even, even if you have something where you're pressing keys 
and you think that it's non, you know, inconsequential, it's still your job. And like yeah. performance can suffer there. Remember, like you said, your brain uses brain? a ton amount of, a ton of glucose. I give out yeah. cocaine Natterall to all the employees here. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Your uh, <laughs> sound bites are terrific. <laughs> no, but can you imagine like a firefighter being like, oh, it's a I fasted know. day today, guys. Yeah, sorry, like, guys. Uh, I'll, I'll get up there soon to yeah. go save you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, uh, it's, it's. There's one thing like performance isn't just athletic performance, but it's outside of that too. And like, like we it's talked about day. last week, last week, when you're starving yourself and you're going through whatever you're going through, life Ooh. tends to suck more. No, mm-hmm. here you know? too. Family um, relationships, everything. Yeah. It kicks down in the family. Totally. You're oh, fasting sure. and suddenly you're like a grouch. Mm-hmm. And then you put that on your spouse, your kids, <laughs> and then they all get it. And they're like, well, I didn't do anything. Right. Yeah. That's so like, that's another huge mm. part of it. And that's mm. just going to create a whole spiral of other stressors in your life that are going to affect totally. everything. So, yeah. and then you probably gain weight because your cortisol, cortisol goes up and then you're like stressed. And you're like, I'm going to binge. <laughs> yeah, <Right>? exactly. <laughs> is it working? Uh, yeah, it is something to be really careful with because it, it can be a slippery slope. I think it can be really easy, especially as athletes to start accumulating these little mental rules about what you can and can't eat or when you can and can't eat. And that is a very slippery slope. So it's just mm. something to be aware of. Uh, Georgie says, uh, I have a question too. He says, if you're not rested after a last workout, should you skip it or should you do it at 50%? I figured Chad, we should run through like the cascade that we have of basically like adjustments you make to a workout mm-hmm. on that. Um, and then, uh, we'll get into the second one after that. Cause it's unrelated. So if you're not feeling like you can finish it, what, sh- what, yeah, what so, do you recommend? Uh, it kind of depends on the intensity of the workout. So low intensity workouts, basically just cut it short. I mean, if you're, if you're not even fresh enough to maintain a low in- workout intensity, you're just too tired to be on the bike. Mm-hmm. So probably good point. just to scrap it. Mm-hmm. Um, with high intensity, the intensity is what derives the change or the stimulus. It's the stimulus that provides or leads to the adaptation we're seeking. So it's really important that, in- that intensity stays pretty close to where we've pegged it. Um, so if you can't do it, dropping the intensity might actually miss the the goals of that workout. So you're really not doing yourself any service and probably just furthering your fatigue in the process, which yeah. you know sets the stage for the next couple of workouts, et cetera. We usually so, recommend like a quick back pedal in the middle of the interval if you can't continue to do that. It depends how bad off you are. But yeah, if, you, if you're just kind of teetering on that edge and something as simple as a brief back pedal can keep you in the game, then terrific. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can, you can, uh, kind of just make your way gradually through the workout and call it as it goes, maybe turn it off. If, if you get to a point where the fatigue is simply too high and you find yourself backpedaling more frequently and you, you just recognize you're starting to, the, the wheels are coming off the wagon. Mm-hmm. When you're really like pushing Amber, I'm sure you've been in the spots where you're like, you're really pushing your limits a lot as a professional athlete in terms of what your body can handle. I'm sure you've had to shut it down early oh, yeah. on days. Oh yeah. Sure. And the, the consequences that you feel thereafter. I mean, that's like where the next day, like, if well, we oh, you push yeah. through it and you push through and you push through the next days, then it just all starts to compound. Right. Oh yeah. I mentioned earlier that I went through a period of severe overtraining and that's exactly how it happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working with a coach who was a f- phenomenal coach. Um, and, it's so clear in hindsight, (laughs) but at the time what was happening was I was, this was happening. I was really tired and I was struggling with motivation to get on the bike. And my coach was this amazing motivational speaker. So (laughs) (laughs) Tony Robbins, you know, it was like, I'd send him an email and he'd send me this amazing email back and I'd be super fired up and I just go out again and go out again Mm. and go out again. And the problem was that this massive pattern had developed in which every single email I sent him was about me feeling tired, struggling to get on the bike for months. And neither one of us stepped back and said, 
hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe yeah. there's something else going on here. And because I just kept pushing through and I mean, it was really motivating and that part was great, except that it was a time when I really did need to step back. And so after that, learning the lesson, trying to trying to not make the same mistake again was really hard because you do have this tug of war in your mind of, okay, I'm tired, but am I just being lazy? Is this tired that I need to push through or is this tired that I really need to step back and rest from? And the litmus test that I used was I would say, okay, I'm going to get on my bike. And I get on my bike and I give myself 20 minutes. And if within 20 minutes I wasn't glad that I'd gotten on my bike, because sometimes that happens where you're just really tired. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to go out. Yeah. But you get on the bike, you get a few pedal strokes, and you're like, oh, yeah, actually this feels really great. Mm -hmm. Then I'd go forward with the workout. But if within 20 minutes I was like, no, not feeling mm -hmm. it, I would go home. And the deal in my mind was that's it. I'm taking the day off. No guilt. I needed this. And mm -hmm. that litmus test kind of helped me manage the guilt side of that when I needed to take the some The difficult time off. thing is you're not always going to feel great for a workout. So, right. so just because you don't feel great, that's not a, that's not the, that's, that's not, not that's the not, test. Yeah. No, it's not. The key part of this is you, you were feeling unmotivated for many days and you're a highly motivated yeah. person. Mm -hmm. um, in general, for our subscribers, um, some people doing three workouts a week. And if you're new to this stuff, like at Chad's point, like you're not going to feel great every time. Right. No, and I, too, no. I've had it where, you know, you do a, a block, Monday's a rest day, Sunday, you're like, uh, should I do it or not? And then you just, if you can push yourself through, you find limits that you weren't aware of. Yeah, right. And the next too. day you recover, but then Tuesday you're like, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, we good. are, we're, totally. we're extending limits, expanding limits, right? That's not always going to feel good. So you have to recognize the difference between I'm tired today, but I know I can do this workout or that first 20 mm -hmm. minutes says, I don't feel great, but I can do this versus I don't feel great. I need to pull the plug. I feel terrible. Yeah. So maybe a good way of doing it is, is pushing through initially, but then if it's persisting. And then the other thing to remember to your point, Nate, is no one does any workout at a hundred percent ever. Yeah. No one does any race at a hundred percent. Ever. When you line up for a race, you're not at 100%, but neither is anybody else there. There's inevitably going to be something totally. that wrong that morning, that you're maybe your yeah. tapers off, you know, whatever it is, like no one's ever at 100%. So you can't, don't go into that, don't go into it with that expectation. Expecting perfection. That's yeah. such a good thing to remember because you'll find yourself thinking that you have the worst situation or the worst yeah. scenario on the line because you had that one problem. <laughs> and you'll think that everybody else, they didn't have that problem, so they're okay. Yeah. But it's that, that's a, such a good thing to remember. I will brag about this. So I did before my <laughs> <Really>? mountain bike <laughs> shocked. We just stretch out here. Before uh, the mountain bike race, sea race, I did Carpathian Peak plus two or something. It Which is uh, described roughly. I think it's 12 minute over-unders where you spend like a minute over, but the ramp is also Peaking above. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I think it's like four of those miserable. or something yeah. or three. It's hard. It's a big one. But I wanted to also see to this comment. I want to see like, could I do a race the next day? Can I put power out? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I knew I was going to have a recovery week after that. So that's, right. I, I actually. And it's a low priority race. I was, yeah. So that people ask me to travel like, why the heck did you do that? But I had a whole recovery week afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm not going to put myself. I, I don't think I'm going to do long-term harm no. by doing this. Right. Maybe, with the, maybe that was week one of a plan of like plan. It would have been bad, but yeah. it was, it was cool. And I, I could actually. Like it gave me confidence, right? right. Like mm -hmm. I could, even with that, the next day, mm -hmm. I could still put out power and race after doing over-unders. And this is a great example of why not to wait to race until you feel like oh, all yeah. the stars are aligning because it's actually a really great confidence booster to show up and know that everything went wrong and you can still 
deliver a, a, a respectable result. And yeah. I think stage races are really great for that because you get a couple yeah. stages in and you feel totally destroyed and you just think, I can't possibly go another day. But then you have to remember that everyone else everyone is destroyed else. too. And then you get out there and you do it again. You're like, oh, wow, actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can still go really deep. And it's, it's yeah, it's a huge confidence booster. I remember uh, back in the day when before Train Road started, it was like uh, the, there was a stage race series. It was just three days. It was brand new. And at work, I was complaining to everybody like, I can't, I can't do this. Oh my goodness. And it was, I was two, only two workouts in a row, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like an hour long race and like a 20 minute TT. And I was just mad. Strict. But then I came in and I won the last crit and I was like, oh. There you go. Like, and I, I yeah. felt though, like, this is, I don't know. I felt like death. Like I should just go to sleep. Um, but yeah, you don't know until you try. Right. But the, going back to the point is if you feel like this all the time, right. there's a that's pattern. a huge if there's a pattern emerging, then yeah. you really, really need to step back and take a look at what's going on. Uh, that more or less, there are a bunch of other ones, some of them that would require some research on our ends but before I'd be comfortable addressing I, well, them. I'm not, you have not through any yet. Um, okay. What do you guys think is some good cross-training that is uh, where uh, Steve lives in Texas? Mm -hmm. What's good cross-training other than skiing? Because a lot of people don't have access to skiing. Very true. Hiking. Hiking, Hiking yeah. and walking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've seen like a lot of people mention uh, like are a lot of mountain bikers. You see them spending time on a dirt bike, and I want to assure people that's just purely for fun. There is no, there's no real physiological benefit they get from that. And you just run a pretty high risk just because injuries happen pretty regularly in that sport. Um, speaking from experience, but I honestly think like with the cross training side of things, you could see even see something as soccer as being beneficial just oh, due to yeah. the lateral movements that you get with that. Hmm. You're never running straight, yeah. hardly. I mean. If you're a really good soccer player, you might be able to run straight, but chances are you're you're, you're going to have better people playing with you. So you're going to be spending a lot of time running sideways and doing a lot of dynamic movements that'll build you out rather than just that single plane movement. I like yeah. basketball. Basketball is another mm -hmm. good one. Whatever sounds play. fun, honestly, because yes. a really important piece of it is that mental break. And if it's something that's really fun and engaging for you, that's going to be so much more effective than, you know, trying to go slog it out on like the Stairmaster or something. Please don't do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kevin has a good question. I'm going to put this as a principle. If you have two or three races a day, is it better to kind of race with the slower people to get more points or to race with the faster people to improve your skills and handling? Do Depends both. on where you're at. Do yeah. both. Yeah. Because yeah, if you can. Yeah, I think there, this is a really important thing for anybody who's looking to progress in the sport. You really have to balance races that are going to build your confidence and races that are going to really challenge you and put you outside your comfort zone. Because if you're, a, let's say, Cat 3 racer, for example, and you have the options to race, you know, lower categories or higher categories, you're going to learn so much more from racing against the higher categories. Um, just in terms of positioning, pick a cat two or cat one rider to follow through a crit. You're going to learn a boatload from that. But at the same time, that's different from learning how to win a race. And you're not going to learn how to win a race necessarily in a P12 crit if the level is that, you know, if you've just upgraded, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so I really think it's important to stay in the category that you're in until you can win a couple races because the sense that the sense that you can win races and learning how to win races is something that will carry forward with you. But it's always good to challenge yourself by competing against people who are better than you. Always, always. You'll know you're ready to move up when you get bumped up. <laughs> I mean, it sounds sounds simple, but that's honestly. I'd prefer people went that way. Yeah. I mean, get, get a ton of experience, learn how to win a race. Yeah. And then let, let them advance you rather than this this mad dash to get your cat one. Yeah. It's, yeah. Take your ego out of it. I mean, you, the whole thing is going to be a learning process and you're better off accumulating a lot of skill going up into the next category than, you know, really, really pushing it. And then 
you just, you feel like you're behind the eight ball the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Risa has a question for you, Amber. She mm-hmm. says, in the situation where you had the, the, the relationship with your coach that was just putting you <laughs> deeper into a hole. Yeah. Um, she says, what specifically made you realize that you were fatigued rather than just not motivated? Differentiating between the two. Oh, they're highly correlated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes there are times when I'm really tired, but I'm still really motivated. Mm. Um, and when I'm tired and unmotivated, that's when I start thinking, hmm, I need to start really paying attention to what's going on. And that's where I start asking myself questions like, have I been eating enough lately? That's a really quick and easy way to, you know, if you haven't been eating enough carbohydrate, that's a like a, an instant fix. Um, so that's one thing, but, you know, start, start thinking about what's going on in your life. Are you not sleeping well? Are there stressors in your life off the bike that maybe you're not accounting for in terms of determining how much recovery and nutrition you need? Start just kind of looking for those balances. Um, and then if a pattern starts emerging over a period of time, that's when it starts to get really bad. And, and the way that for me, it was going on over the course of a season, but I mean, I was a professional, so I, I had to keep racing. It was just in, in, each race I was doing, I was feeling worse and worse, performing worse and worse, and that got in my head and it created this whole downward spiral. But I didn't really have an opportunity to step out of that. And because I hadn't gone through this before, I had convinced myself that I just needed to keep training harder, mm-hmm. which is a really, yeah, it, it's a typical, it's a, it's a more common problem than you might think. Um, and so, so for me, what ended up happening was I had to get through the whole season, and by the last race, I was done. Like. I was so excited to cross that finish line and mm. just chuck my bike in the van. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't look at it for two months. Yeah. And after two months of not touching the bike, which is not normal for me, usually a couple of weeks and I start getting really antsy and want to ride again. After two months of not touching the bike, I still didn't want to. And I finally then at that point was like, okay, something is really, really, really wrong. I'm not just tired. And I went to the doctor and we did some blood work and it was like, pff, you know, everything was out of whack. And then, then it was like, okay, really proactively, you know, healing from that. And that what did t- you do? Oh, that takes a long time. Um, yeah, how long was that road back? First off, it was a long road. Uh, I would say I, it took over a year yeah. to feel mm-hmm. normal again. And that that's why you really don't want to dig those holes. And it's a balance. You have to be really honest with yourself because I think for a lot of people, the motivation piece is the hard one. So pushing through mm-hmm. those workouts that you don't want to do, it is important. Like Chad was saying earlier, being tired, not feeling great. That's part of the sensation, but this is why it's so important to tune into your body and not, you know, don't just rely on the numbers. Think about, you know, your emotional well-being, what's going on in your life, tuning into your body. Um, sorry, I'm just blanking on something that I was going to say earlier. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a balance and it's stepping back and looking for those patterns. I well, think Nate asked really what important. you did to come back from it. Oh, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of rest. It was a lot of rest. And I think that a big piece of this is the sympathetic parasympathetic. So doing a lot of walking and just kind of letting the nervous system reset. And then I did a lot of, I was a lot of vitamin su- supplementation. Um, what, what vitamins? Uh, vitamin D, vitamin B was a big part of it for me. I was, okay. I had what they call macrocytic anemia, mm. which is where your hematocrit looks normal, but actually your blood, your red blood cell count is low. So the hematocrit, the way they do it is they centrifuge your blood and they kind of look <clears> at you know, visually in the tube, there's a percentage of white blood cells and a percentage of red blood cells. So they can say the percentage volume of your blood is so many red blood cells. But what was happening was my blood cells were enlarging abnormally. Mm -hmm. So it actually looked like I had a higher hematocrit than I did. My my blood cell count was actually really low. So I was functionally anemic. And that has a lot to do with uh, vitamin B intake. So that was a big one for me. And then it's just giving your body time and rest to to let the endocrine systems come back on board and rebalance because my my hormones were 
completely out of whack. And, and that, mm. that was a big one. And that's just, that's just time and rest. How many people are probably in that boat, but they don't have a lifestyle that forces them to like push performance to that level. So they mm -hmm. just kind of like think that's probably the well, existence, you know what I mean? Like, cause it can happen yeah. in a lot of ways, especially like CEOs of companies and everything else running themselves well, down low. I want to quote another friend yeah. of mine. Um, <laughs> her name's Joy McCullough. She's hi Joy, by the way, if you're watching, um, she's a phenomenal coach and we were at a clinic together and we were talking to a, a big group of women about training. And the question was, you know, my, my schedule is so busy. I've got work, I've got kids, I got family. And if I have, let's say a 45 minute window in the afternoon, what's the best use of that time? What can I, what can I really do to jack up my, you know, my performance? Sleep. And she said, take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like seriously, you, you know, when you're, when you're going and going and going like that, that that's all sympathetic system. You need time to take out you know, to, to rebalance with the parasympathetic. And so if, if sometimes the best thing you can do is just take a day off or take a nap and sleep in, I mean, and again, you have to be honest with yourself. Is this, you know, am I, am I doing the work that I need to do? Is this really because I'm digging myself in a hole or, you know, it's yeah. Learning yourself is really, really important. Awesome. Thanks, Amber. Mm -hmm. Thanks everybody for joining us today for the, for the episode 194, man, we're getting close to 200. I got to think of something real special for 200. We'll think of it. Um, uh, maybe we'll have the Chillo join us. If you guys don't know what the Chillo is, no. you can search through the archives. John's uh, sitting on it. <laughs> let's let's, let's move on off Face that. Down. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Remember, you can submit your questions at trainerroad.com slash podcast. You can find this episode. Just look for episode 194 on forum.trainerroad.com. Please check out what we're doing at Trainer Road. Uh, you can do so. Just go to trainerroad.com. If you, if you share Trainer Road, that sort of stuff, we greatly greatly appreciate it. Um, we love that. So it helps make your friends faster. Hopefully you're not racing them, but just the same. Hey, it's still good, right? Yeah. Faster training partners equals faster you. So yeah. thanks everybody for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.